Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. We're here. And queer, apparently. <laughs> well, it's never been a fucking secret. So That's I mean, true. Like... <laughs> so, obviously, it's time for another deep dive, and it's time for Chris and I to talk about one of our shared favorite horror movies, which I think we've been doing a lot of, you know, throughout the summer months and into September. Yeah. But what are we talking about this month? Poltergeist. Or Tangina the movie. Tangina the movie. I love that calendar invite you said. It's like Tangina the movie. <laughs> love it. <laughs> yeah, so we're super excited to talk about this movie. I know that Chris and I both love it very much. We've loved it since we were very young. I'm sure we've got a lot to say, so this could be another quarantine length episode. Poltergeist is a 1982 American supernatural horror film directed by. <clears throat> Toby Hoover <laughs> and written by Steven Spielberg in one of the very few written credits that he has gotten along with Michael Grays and Mark Victor based on the story by Spielberg who also produced the movie along with Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy in one of her first producer roles after transitioning from being Spielberg's personal assistant <laughs> the movie stars Joe Beth Williams Craig T. Nelson Heather O'Rourke, Beatrice Strait, and Zelda Rubinstein. The film's score was composed by Jerry Goldsmith. A clause in his contract prevented Spielberg from directing another film while he made E.T., so he chose Hooper to direct based on his work on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the Funhouse. The film was first conceived as a dark horror sequel to Close Encounters entitled Dark Skies, but Hooper wasn't too keen on the sci-fi elements and suggested a ghost story. Later, he and Spielberg would go on to collaborate on the first treatment for the film. While that seems amicable, the film is famously mired in controversy surrounding creative credit based on comments made by Spielberg and others about the filming process with Hooper. An investigation was even opened by the Directors Guild of America into the matter, but I'm sure we'll get into all that later. Okay, now clear your minds. It knows what scares you. It has from the very beginning. Don't give it any help. It knows too much already. This is Poltergeist. looks just like the one next to it and the one next to that and the one next to that a young couple live in it give Ken a kiss <laughs> you are so with their three children <laughs> and something more Remember the last night? Do you remember when you woke up and you said you're here? Uh-huh. Well, who did you meet? Who's here? TV people. Something's funny going on here next door. Something, uh... We were wondering if maybe you had experienced any disturbances lately. What kind of disturbances? I don't know what happens over this house. Now Steven Spielberg crosses a frightening new threshold. 
into a world within our own. Its form is revealed. What is it? Its focus is clear. It knows what scares you. Steve and Diane Freeling, played by Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams, along with their children Dana, Robbie, and Carol Ann, played by Heather O'Rourke, live in a California subdivision named Cuesta Verde, where Steve is a successful real estate agent. Late one night, as the television network is signing off for the day, Carol Ann wanders into the room and becomes transfixed with the static on the screen and starts a conversation with something unseen. The following day, Diane finds the children's bird Tweety dead. She and Carol Ann have a small burial service. Later that night, Carol Ann again talks to the TV when the signal is out for the day, but this time a beam of light shoots from the TV and into the walls of the home, causing a major earthquake in the house that wakes the family. When the tremor stops, Carol Ann announces to the family, The next morning, strange events begin to occur in the kitchen. A glass breaks, silverware is bent, and furniture moves on its own. While Diane is excited about these inexplicable events, Steve decides no one will enter the affected area until he finds out exactly what's happening. Later that night, during a terrible storm, a gnarled old tree comes to life, breaks through the window, and attacks Robbie, dragging him out into the night. Steve and Diane race outside to save him, but while outside the house, a strong vortex sucks Carol Ann into her closet, and she vanishes. After saving Robbie from the tree, the Freelings frantically search the house for Carol Ann. Eventually, Robbie hears her through the TV. With a sickening realization, the family begins to grasp that Carol Ann has been taken to the other side. Unsure of where to turn, Steve visits a group of parapsychologists at UC Irvine and explains the goings-on at his home. Dr. Lesh, played by Beatrice Strait, and her assistants Marty and Ryan head to the home to investigate and are amazed at what they see. Paranormal events happening all over the house, centered on the children's bedroom. Dr. Lesh attempts to explain to the Freelings the difference between a haunting and poltergeist activity, and why she feels that they're experiencing a poltergeist. Later that evening, with the television set to a channel with static, the family contacts Carol Ann and can hear her voice. During this conversation, Carol Ann reveals that she's not alone, and that something is coming for her. Everyone hears thunderous footsteps upstairs just before the room they're standing in gets violently blasted by an unseen force. Marty goes to investigate, but is bitten by an unseen presence. Later that night, he also experiences a hallucination of eating rotten, wormy chicken and his face melting off while looking into a mirror. During this time, the team records apparitions appearing as balls of light on camera. Shaken, Dana goes to stay with friends and Robbie is sent to his grandmother's house for safety. Steve has a meeting with his boss, Teague, played by James Karen, on a tall hill next to a cemetery, where he offers Steve a house on that spot with a window overlooking the valley. Steve says that would be impossible, since there's a cemetery there. Teague explains why that wouldn't be a problem, as they've relocated a cemetery before. 
right where the Freeling's current neighborhood sits. The parapsychologists return with a spiritual medium, Tangina Behrens, played by Zelda Rubenstein, who uses her powers to ascertain the goings-on in the house. She informs everyone that Carol Ann is alive and in the house, but in another dimension with spirits who have left this life but have not yet crossed over through the spectral light and into eternity. They're stuck and feeling alone and lonely and even angry. Carol Ann, being so young and full of life, has a brilliant light of her own and is a great distraction for these lost souls. But the spirits in Carol Ann are not alone. There is another, more powerful presence in there with them. It has a rage that Tangina has never felt before, and it uses Carol Ann to control the other spirits. It keeps her very close to it, and it talks to her in ways only a child would understand. To her, it simply is another child. But to everyone else, it is the beast. They realize that the entrance to the other side is in the children's closet, and after testing that items can move through it and back into the house on the floor below, a plan is hatched to tie a rope around Tangina so she can enter the spiritual realm and retrieve Carol Ann. Diane convinces her that she should be the one to make the journey as Carol Ann wouldn't come to anyone else, to which Tangina agrees. Diane and Steve share a kiss, and she enters the closet and enters the other side. Tangina calls out to the spirits to cross over into the light while the others pull the rope from downstairs, and Diane falls back into the living room clutching Carol Ann. The two are revived in a hot bath prepared beforehand, and Tangina announces that the house is clean. Sometime later, the Freelings prepare to leave Cuesta Verde, and on their last night in the house, Steve has a final meeting with Teague, leaving Diane and the children alone at home. Diane draws a bath while the children get ready for bed. While in their room, Robbie's clown doll comes to life and pulls him under the bed as the closet door opens and a brilliant light washes over Carol Ann. Diane hears the screams and tries to run to them, but is pulled up the wall and onto the ceiling by an unseen force. It seems that while the spirits have moved on, the beast has not. Diane runs face to face with the beast in the hallway, projecting itself as a giant skeletal demon. It blocks the children's door and lunges at her, knocking her downstairs. Inside the room, Robbie has freed himself and ripped the clown doll to pieces, but a huge, mouth-like opening has appeared around the closet and is trying to suck them in. Diane runs outside to scream for help, but falls into their freshly dug swimming pool. Diane tries to escape, but coffins begin erupting from the ground with the pool releasing corpses around her. She finally emerges from the pool and runs into the house, where even more corpse-filled coffins rise from the ground. Diane makes her way to the children, and they narrowly make their escape. They head outside just as Teague and Steve are pulling up to the house. The entire neighborhood is going crazy with even more coffins emerging from the ground. Steve confronts Teague with the now obvious fact. The cemetery wasn't properly relocated. They moved the headstones but left all the bodies under the homes. Dana arrives back at the house and becomes hysterical at what she sees happening. Steve rushes his family into his car as their house violently implodes and is sucked into the other dimension as neighbors look on in horror. The weary family safely makes it to a motel, but before they settle in, Steve pushes the motel TV out of the room and onto the balcony. This synopsis is clean. <laughs> the end. Yeah. 
So before its release, the MPAA gave Poltergeist an R rating, as PG-13 did not exist at the time. However, Spielberg and Hooper appealed, and the film was given the rating of PG instead, which no doubt involves some schmoozing. The PG-13 rating wouldn't be invented until 1984, after Spielberg's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom sparked the anger of parents because of its darker themes. Poltergeist was released on June 4th, 1982, alongside Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, and a re-release of Disney's Bambi. The film opened on 890 screens and came in third at the box office with an opening weekend totaling almost $7 million. Total worldwide box office would reach $76.6 million against a budget of only $10.7 million. The film was a commercial success, the highest grossing horror movie of 1982, and the eighth highest grossing film that year. Poltergeist holds an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score sits at 79%, and the site's What? I know, right? The site's consensus reads, Smartly filmed, tightly scripted, and most importantly, consistently frightening, Poltergeist is a modern horror classic. So Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four stars, calling it an effective thriller, not so much because of the special effects as because Hooper and Spielberg have tried to see the movie's strange events through the eyes of the family members, instead of just standing back and letting the special effects overwhelm the cast along with the audience. <coughs> Poltergeist remake. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Andy Saris in the Village Voice wrote that when Carol Ann is lost, the parents and the two older children come together in a blood-kin empathy to form a larger-than-life family that will reach down to the gates of hell to save its loved ones. Not all the reviews were positive, though. Gene Siskel, resident horror naysayer, gave the film one and a half out of four stars, writing that the film is very good at getting the details of suburban life right. In other words, it sets the stage beautifully, but when it becomes time for the terror to begin, the whole thing is very, very silly. You know, I'm getting real tired of putting Gene Siskel quotes in here for horror movies, but like when you're you're trying to find negative reviews to like combat the positive ones and show like the entire spectrum of it, and it's always yeah. Gene Siskel. He just doesn't like horror movies. I mean, yeah, Gene, get out of my podcast. <laughs> well, he's dead now. Sheila Benson of the LA Times wrote, in terms of simple, flat-out, roof-rattling fright, Poltergeist gives full value. In terms of story, however, simple is indeed the word, and dumb might be a better one. And when so many effects are lavished on a story this frail, you have a lopsided film. Whatever. <laughs> Fuck you, Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> Sheila's a bitch to have <laughs> <laughs> Sheila Karen Benson. As far as accolades and awards, it was nominated for Best Original Score, Best Visual Effects, and Best Sound Effects Editing at the Oscars. Of course, they all lost to Spielberg's other film, E.T. <laughs> um, at the BAFTAs, it won Best Special Visual Effects. And at the Saturn Awards, it won Best Horror or Thriller Film, Best Makeup, and Best Supporting Actress for Zelda Rubenstein. At the Saturns that year, it was nominated for Best Actress, uh, Jobeth Williams, who lost to Sandal Bergman from Conan the Barbarian. Um, <laughs> it was nominated for Best Score, but lost to E.T., Best Director, and it lost to Nicholas Meyer for Star Trek II, which is kind of odd to me when I read who actually won that year because the other nominees were Steven Spielberg for E.T., Ridley Scott for Blade Runner, and George Miller for Mad Max 2. Out of all those directors and movies... They're all classics. They're all classics. The Star Trek uh, Wrath of Khan is said to be one of the best, if not the best Star Trek film ever. You I know, know? So out of these that- are all classics standing up against each other. And you know what? If If, you know... The Saturn Awards were just like rife with, hey, we finally got a good Star Trek movie. 
because they hadn't existed yet, if you recall, at that time, then everyone's going to be excited about that franchise. I still don't think I would have chosen that director to be best director that year, though. Out of this, like, that's that's really good. That's a good, like, crop of directors for that award. So, Well, you're also thinking, you know, you're pitting Spielberg against Spielberg in a way, you know? So that kind of crosses each other out when they're in the same, no- you know, a nomination, because at the Oscars, that's not going to happen. At the Saturn Awards, it is. Right. And then there's Ridley Scott and the first the first version of Blade Runner was widely panned. And of course, Mad Max 2, while a classic, you know, some people have differences of opinion of Mad Max 2 versus the first Mad Max or et cetera, et cetera, Thunderdome. So I don't know. You know, it's it, it, it's a I think this is a voting situation and a splitting of the vote. Situation. I mean, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I see that. But technically, it was Toby Hooper nominated for the award, not Steven Spielberg. It's like Toby against Spielberg for E.T. Yeah. But I will get more into that later. <laughs> Two sequels followed the original Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, from 1986, and Poltergeist 3 from 1988. Neither were as successful as the original. A remake was released in 2015 in 3D. The remake fared slightly better than the sequels, bringing in $95 million at the box office. In 2019, the Rousseau brothers announced that they would direct yet another remake. And they're responsible for the Avengers movies, right? The later ones? The later ones, yes. Yeah. They, their kind of claim to fame was take, kind of taking over the Captain America franchise and turning them to like political thrillers and really, really having a sure hand. They, their record on like Rotten Tomatoes is huge. I mean, like everything is at 95% or above or something, you know? Um, and of course, what they did with you know, by taking over the franchise, Marvel was like, oh, we love what you did here. You know, then they did Civil War and they're like, so we're going to give you, you know, the entire capper for the last, you know, 10 to 12 years of Marvel films. And of course, they did an amazing job. And, you know, so I'd, I'd be interested to see what they do. Rumor has it that they're going to try and do something different. They're not going to try and do a remake. They're going to try and slightly like change the story in a number of ways. Okay. Um, you know, and try and do their own thing. But I think that, you know, some people have argued, well, then why call it Poltergeist? And it's because they control, I think, the the rights at this point. And so why not use it to capitalize on on the name while being reverent to the original? I don't know. We'll see. If, if any directors can do it, they can. They know how to handle action and emotion and bombastic, you know, stuff. Okay. So Well, I'd be interested. Uh, so writing in his Spielberg book, Empire of Dreams... Andrew M. Gordon called Close Encounters, E.T., and Poltergeist Spielberg's suburban trilogy. And I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All kind of back to back in a way. Eh? Yeah. So let's get a little bit into the movie. Let's. Let's do that. Yeah. So yet again, I have uh, split this into four acts. And uh, Poltergeist is a little interesting because there are three major acts. And the fourth one is kind of like a surprise because we have that false ending mm-hmm. before we get ahead of ourselves. Let's, uh, let's go into act one, as I call it the calling, <laughs> the call is coming from inside the TV. Yeah. <laughs> so we got that cold open with a star spangled banner, right? Which I, I love. And I feel like it's going to be lost on a lot of generations right now. Let's just yeah. start off with that, you know, because TV ended <laughs> every day, you know, at a certain time, TV would just stop and there would be no broadcast. And so they would end with a star spangled banner and then it would just cut to static and you'd have white noise. And this is why cable was such a big thing when it came out or got to be very, very popular in the early eighties, right? That cable channels would sort of like go on all night long, but the cable, the TV channels that you would get for free would end, you know, I mean, and 
up until mm-hmm. when I was a teenager, things would go off the air, right? So into the 90s, for sure. Like, this was an actual thing. And I think a lot of kids today watching Poltergeist for a myriad of reasons would just not understand anything that's just going on that people at the time would take for yeah. normal. You don't even get static yeah. anymore. Not even Like, on TV, you get off the shelf now, it's mm-hmm. just black. You know, there's just nothing. Um like I, I don't even know where you'd get static at this point to see it. It's it's interesting, you know, the things that you don't think you'll miss. <laughs> but yeah, so it would end and the Star Spangled Banner would play. And I love that that's kind of like a kind of a major piece of this film because it opens with it and it kind of happens twice in the movie, right at the start. And then like basically the very next night we hear it again. I think it's super important to start with the Star Spangled Banner and Poltergeist anyway, because I think this movie is sort of about suburban life like we talked about just a second ago right suburban trilogy and you know kind of like the american dream turning into the american nightmare and like the best way to do it is to start with the star spangled banner anyway it just it works for multiple reasons and sets up everything else that happens in the movie we also get this really good visual storytelling moment with the dog traveling to different rooms like even before the characters kind of start to speak you kind of start getting to know them and I love that it's kind of the dog traveling mm-hmm. to all the different rooms, then Carol Ann waking up and going down to that TV that her dad has fallen asleep at and starts to answer questions to the static. And that I remember being very, very creepy when I first watched this movie. Because you're like, what did she just say? Like, because it doesn't make sense until you think about it. You know, she's like, five, mm-hmm. you know, and like, yes, yes. And I like, don't Shit. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like so she's getting a barrage of questions. I like I like the dog traveling throughout the house. And as I was watching it for the recording of the podcast, I was like, I wonder if my dog does that, just goes and checks things throughout the house. And I mean, obviously, there's only two of us living here and we sleep in the same bed. So, but Yeah, well, I know my cat does that. She go around stealing bags mm-hmm. of chips and things like that, too. Oh, know. well, I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> just little pieces of my soul. Oh. <laughs> That's what cats do. I remember, yeah, watching this movie for the first time. Well, I mean, not really. I think I watched this movie like very, very young and I watched it a lot throughout my life. But that scene at the TV is is a really good opening to the movie. It really sets up a lot and it is very mm-hmm. creepy. So you're correct. Yeah. So the next day after, of course, the whole family kind of woke up and witnessed that because she was answering them loudly because she couldn't really hear them that well, I guess, through the TV, the TV people. <laughs> But then we get the introduction to like basically the neighborhood. You know, we have that football game and the kind of rivalry between the neighbors, you know, and we get introduced to the family just kind of moving out through their day, you know, on a weekend. And then, of course, we get the canary in the coal mine <laughs> with Tweety dying, you know, and I never really thought about that before. I think I think a couple of years ago, I finally thought of it. I was like, wow, that literally is canary in the coal mine dying because it starts. That's the first thing that happens after Carolyn makes contact is literally the yellow bird dies in the cage. And have have you and I talked about this before, just in general on our own? Maybe. I'm not sure. Maybe. I, I can't remember I so. a conversation like that. We've talked about Poltergeist for hours. I know. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's possible. But uh, this was the first time I ever, it dawned on me. I was like, oh my God, the canary died in the house. And I was just like... <laughs> It's a sign. I was like, get out. <laughs> it never, it never crossed my mind before in, you know, the 40 years I've been alive that that canary is some sort of like omen or symbol. Yeah. Maybe so, we can play a little game. I'm going to just decide where, where in the story would Nikki leave the house and just never come back? <laughs> <laughs> Nikki, let us know. Come on. <laughs> so I don't think she would have left just yet. 
But anyway, then we, we get even more kind of family exposition. This film spends a lot of time, like 30 minutes or more, just with the family before really anything kicks off too hardcore. You right. know, we get Steve and Diane in this excellent scene, just like being together as a married couple. Very little exposition. There is some there, but really they're just talking about their life. You know, and this family just seems so natural at this point. It almost feels like a documentary. Yeah, I mean, I get that. And I I love that scene. I um, we've talked before in this podcast about how we feel about Steve and Diane Freeling and their relationship. And uh, I mean, it, it is so incredibly natural. You get the idea that this is how they are every single day. Like they they walk around, they take care of their children, they make sure their kids are asleep, they get into their room, and they just have some time for themselves. And mm-hmm. I love it. It's like fucking relationship goals. Like honestly, <laughs> <laughs> so. They're making jokes, you know, he's reading like a Reagan book, you know, just yeah. to hammer home that like nuclear family, like 19, mm-hmm. early 1980s thing, yeah. even more, you know, smoke a little pot. I love it. And then, you know, he's jumping on the bed and, and they're making jokes about their previous, you know, life, you know, so it's just, it's hilarious. Well, she's talking about, cause she's talking about sleepwalking, right? Yeah. At this point. Mm-hmm. And she's like, my father had me checked for hickeys. <laughs> no it's just so good and so believable i i love it let's love it yeah but then we of course we get that storm you know and robbie has that tree outside his window and may i just go on record as saying fuck that tree that tree really is i mean i know we called it gnarled in the synopsis (laughs) but it's i mean it's a fucked up looking tree if i were to buy a house and that was in the backyard i'd be like let's just go ahead and cut it down it really looks hideous kill it with fire yeah god it's so ugly yeah it's yeah it's menacing though like it's got like faces and arms and everything obviously Uh it was meant to to, you know look like that right and then of course the the dad kind of comes in because robbie goes and gets him and tries to put him to bed and teaches him to count the the lightning and thunder in his cool little you know father-son moment but then carol ann gets a phone call and i was just i'm wondering if that is like a moment do you feel like that's a moment where that could have been supernatural um I don't know. I mean, I think that she's like, daddy, they want to talk to you or whatever. And he's like, tell him to take a message. And then she's really cutely goes like, he'll take a message. (laughs) She's the cutest little girl. I mean, like for real, but I don't, I mean, I kind of, the thing is that kids pretend like that all the time, you know? I mean, I'm sure we did when we were younger and it's so hard. It's yeah. Who's to say like what's supernatural and what's not. I think that talking to static on the TV probably is a little bit more supernatural than answering your, Mr. Telephone or whatever. Also, just as an aside, I love that one of my favorite horror movies has a poster on the wall of one of my other favorite horror movies, Alien, (laughs) also scored by Jerry Goldsmith. I know. I I know that I've seen that before in the movie, but when I saw it this time, since we've just talked about Aliens so much, I was just like, yay! (laughs) It's hard to see it past the copious, like, embarrassing amount of star wars memorabilia in that room there's a lot of george lucas in that room (laughs) (laughs) yeah some might think he were friends with steven spielberg or something i don't know yeah and so of course the storm gets worse and you know we we jump cut to them being in bed with the parents you know Mm -hmm. which is super relatable you know and then of course uh you know we they all they're all sleeping but the tv shuts down again after the the anthem and we see carol ann wake up because she hears those voices and if you have surround sound and everything you may not have noticed before but you can hear those voices 
And so it's, it's super kind of chilling, but yeah, anyway, like whispery, right? Yeah. 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 And a lot of people haven't noticed that before. Yeah. I've noticed a lot of comments about that, but um, anyway, so the, yeah, they, they kind of come through the TV and like hit the wall. And I was kind of wondering like at that point, why is that not one of the buy locations in the home? The, where the first actual light hit the wall. Yeah. I mean, that makes tons more sense than the kid's closet. Cause nothing was shot into there, you know I mean? But yeah, I don't know. That's, it's, I don't know. That's inconsistent. It's just interesting. I don't know. For, for all we know, I mean, like until we see the blueprints of the Freeling house, the kids' closet could be right on the other side of that wall. You know, I mean, he has to walk You're down right. the hall to get to the You're room, right. but I mean, the way the house is set out, they could have just like set up base camp through that little hole, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and of course we have that moment where Carol Ann says the infamous line, they're queer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're really putting the, the flamer and film flamers today, aren't you? That's my job. No, obviously they're here is one of the most iconic lines in horror movies, right? They really took a hold of that. I think that, you know, the greater public really grasped onto that line. Yeah. So I'm looking at the original poster right now and it's all black and it has the poltergeist, like really boring, you know, typography. That's still pretty effective. And it's Carol Ann with the TV and it says they're here on top. And then underneath the words, a poltergeist says, it knows what scares you. And that's also a good tagline, right? I think yeah. I think they used that for the remake. That was the tagline. It knows what scares you. So, yeah. But after that happens... We get into act two. Right. Which I like to call, they're here. <laughs> it's very original. <laughs> yes. Thank you. And this is a very quick act, right? Because it's kind of like the, the aftermath of what happened the night before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have the first thing we get to see is the breakfast scene in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. Where the shit is starting to get a little weird. We notice that there's a lot going on in their house, right? They're having that pool built and, you know, they're, they're just having a very busy family morning and they just they can't stop to like notice all the weird things that are happening around them. I still like all the details in that scene, though, because like the father, he's like on the phone. He's talking about the earthquake that happened the night before. He ties his tie into the phone. Yeah, line, it's funny. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, just little details like that and just all the little side chatter at the table. It's yet again more like documentary style family just to make it even more grounded until Robbie's glass breaks randomly right you know and then later he notices that the spoons and the utensils are all kind of messed up like warped you know matrix style you are the spoon um <laughs> you know and then later we get the the chair gag right so she she's like bitching about the the chairs not being pushed in and yet again they're they're out and she kind of leaves the room comes back and they're out again and then she pushes them in she goes back into the kitchen the camera's following her in one shot and then she goes back and they're like all piled up onto each other Mm-hmm. and she like, screams right yeah and that still gets people like they're like how did they do that i'm like they, they literally just like took the chairs out and put one like a molded set where they were all in one unit already and just placed it on the table guys come on it's not that hard <laughs> but i think that's the moment where diane starts to realize you know what's going on in her home right Cause she asked carol ann who's sitting right there she's like tv people and she's like uh-huh right mm-hmm. and so yeah she starts to realize that there's something paranormal going on but she she's staring at the static on the screen and she's like, that's going to ruin your eyes. And then she turns the channel and it's war. Oh yeah, everyone's it's like, like a shooting war each other. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, I wonder if there's a message here. <laughs> Probably. There's lots of messages in Poltergeist. Yep. But yeah, so Steve comes home that night and it's more than just chairs being stacked on top of each other on the table. 
things can move of their own accord in certain areas of the kitchen. And she even has gone so far as to create a diagram of where to be <laughs> to get moved on the floor. You can imagine yeah. that she spent all day long doing this, you know, yeah, and Carolyn's just bored out of her mind and right. complaining that she has, doesn't have any dinner and everything else. And she's like, no, 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 we're just going to pizza hut you know and whatever and so yeah so like they don't know what's going on and she's really excited about it i love that moment where she was like remember when you were open-minded steve you know like just remember back really far back into your mind just remember what it was like when you're (laughs) open-minded back to when you had an open mind (laughs) (laughs) it's so funny i know because again like their chemistry is amazing in this movie i just just love it so much and of course he he's like you know not convinced that this is super cool you know and so he's like no one's going into the kitchen you know mm-hmm. and rightly so right because if it can move people and chairs like it can move knives and everything else right i'm sure yeah no shit and of course that night he ends up kind of being right about his paranoia because we get another major storm and this really escalates really quickly like super fast because it's like a normal night and then all of a sudden crash boom lightning and the tree just breaks through the floor and just rips robbie out into the night correct me if i'm wrong but it's been my understanding throughout my life that Southern California doesn't get all that much rain, right? Uh, probably not compared to most other places, but it still gets rain. Just it doesn't really get thunderstorms like we, you know, like you did in, in Texas, you know, yeah. even in Boston, like we don't get like the thunderstorms that Texas does, you know. But there's like two nights in a row that they're having a pretty like nasty storm outside. Yeah, you know, and I was just thinking, I was like watching like the special effects of this of the sky in both of those nights. And I was just like, every meteorologist from here to like New Zealand would be like documenting that shit. Because it just I, right, insane. all those clouds <laughs> rolling in and whatnot. I mean, like there's no way in the world it would catch you off guard, but... <laughs> yeah that's off, way off topic i'm sorry i was just like yeah. yeah and the tornado was a bit much honestly and it's not a good effect yeah no. and it was just like really i mean it just showed behind the fence in the neighbor's yard and yet it didn't do anything to the neighbor's yard so there's like some inconsistency there but i think it was just done to you know this is a huge supernatural kind of diversion from what's going on inside of the house the whole point was to get them outside of the house to worry about something else so it could be free to take what it wanted which was carol ann right you know and then there's that that horrible scene where they finally save robbie because he's literally being eaten by this tree you know they finally save him and robbie's got to beat the fuck up like he's bloody and, and everything and uh he's got a scratched nose for the rest of the movie and they're like oh shit carol ann and so there's this frantic search for carol ann including that heartbreaking like closet scene where they think she's dead in the closet <sighs> yeah so that's a moment for me almost Oh yeah, <laughs> it's cry number one for me. Actually, really? it's cry yeah. number one. Okay, so when 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 that clown doll is the the blanket is covered over it and that goddamn clown for real, which I know I will talk about later on in this episode. So stay tuned for that motherfucking clown. But like, I just you get a sense of who Diane is as a mother and a wife, and like she kneels down first like she's willing to like pull that blanket off and see what it is but she has that small breakdown moment oh my god i love that the acting in this movie is so good and so the minute she's like steven and she cries a little bit and then rips it off like i'm bawling along with her i'm like oh my god you know like they do a really good job as actors creating empathy for the viewers right you know and this is something that we'll talk about later on we talk about the cast and their performances but i mean that that moment is good and this is where writing and direction and producing matter you know because you can you can take the same cast and put them in the sequel and it doesn't work the same way Mm -mm. you know so it all kind of came together for these performances i think you know 
Right. So of course this happens until, you know, Robbie hears Caroline over the TV and he's just like screaming for Diane to come and check it out. And so finally they kind of realize that uh Caroline's not in Kansas anymore. Mm-hmm. And shit has really hit the fan. And she also looks so relieved when she hears her daughter's voice and she's yeah. like Caroline, baby, right? Mm-hmm. And that takes that moment of realization that, you know, things are not right. Yeah. So And then we segue seamlessly into Act Three, the investigation. This movie has many hearts, but I think <laughs> that um the real heart of Poltergeist is Act Three, the investigation. Yes. Oh yes, easily. Yeah. This is where, you know, Steve goes to UC Irvine and finds Dr. Lesh and the paranormal team, including Marty and Ryan. Mm-hmm. You know, and they go to the house and they start investigating. And I love how they're bragging that, you know, they like captured like this small this like moving truck that moves across the floor by itself over a period a little of seven hours car. and time yeah. lapse or whatever and then he just opens the door to carol ann and robbie's room and everything's just like <laughs> crazy <laughs> whirling about a compass is playing music on a record right it's just like it's it's funny it's it's a super funny moment in this movie right and yeah i love it and it's still kind of done well like you know there's a weird kind of stop motion going on in there but honestly it looks pretty good still there are worse effects in this movie than that room oh the room was, god yeah the tornado for one yeah i mean so i mean like the, the room to me i think is really good and believable there's some moments where like dr lesh is sort of like beating things out of her face that i don't think that it was cut very well or whatnot but i don't know oh, the protractor I mean, coming to her face i would have yeah, done yeah. the tippy hedron thing too <laughs> anyway it's funny every time they open the door to that room it makes me laugh a little bit (laughs) 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 yeah so obviously they say you you gotta be faster than that around here then we we get the you know they show how they communicate with carol ann over the tv like and all those details like we can hear her better on this channel you know don't ask me why and you know there's a lot of cool moments there but then they actually get to talk with Carol Ann and that's when Carol Ann is, is letting them know that she's not alone in there. That's like the first hint that something else is malicious in there with, you know, some sort of evil intent. And so then you get this chase scene that you can't see, but it's still just as tense because you hear the footsteps of Carol Ann and then you hear these thunderous footsteps of something else. And then you get the whoosh of, Caroline passing through Diane, her mother, and there's that scene where it's just like she went through my soul. Oh, it's not mommy. Is it Dr. Lesh? Who's with you, baby? Who's with you? God, my God, my baby. No. Bastard, she took the baby! Help her! Help her! Can't you hear what's happening? Help her! She just moved through me. My God. I felt her. It's her. It's my baby. It's my baby. 
she went through my soul. <laughs> That's cry number one for me, but... That's certainly cry number two for me. And I mean, so Rob, my husband, was making fun of me as I was watching this movie because he was just like, I know what scene you're going to cry in. I could just walk in here and catch you crying. And I was like, and I don't understand why people don't cry. It's so touching to me when she's like, I can smell her. Like, I just, my God, it gets me every time. It's a little cheesy when she says she moved through my soul, right? Like, it's a little cheesy. But if you if you invest, if you have invested in this movie, if you've not watched it passively, like, you'll get into it. You see it in her eye, that longing for her daughter, you know? And it's it's really, really touching because she sells it, you know? And she she has to show it, like, here, come, come you know, be with me, you know, experience my daughter, you know, and share that with those people. You know, it's a real moment. And, um, you know, it's, it gets me every time. Oh yeah. I like this part of the movie because it kind of shows you a lapse in time, right? Without saying like two weeks later at the bottom of the screen, right? They do say weeks. They say weeks later on, you know, and, and, but you know, we, we don't have to be told that right away. They show us visually and through with some storytelling and dialogue that she's like, you know, we, we hear her better on this channel. Like they've, they've taken the time to like figure out how to talk to their daughter. Right. Yeah. They, they, they've lived with this for a while. And like Steve looks like fucking hammered shit. Oh my God. Really? Yeah. And I mean, you could tell that he is just like nearing a nervous breakdown. He just can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And yet when these researchers show up to the house, like Diane looks so put together, right? Like she's so incredibly strong and like they just show you all these things like really rapidly while we're getting to know the investigators and what they're going to be doing. It's just masterful direction and writing and producing everything that you just said, you know, as compared to other sequels and things like that. Well, I feel like this is a movie where almost every character is a hero in it. You know, but Diane is the hero of the movie, if I had to pick one. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. You know, and then we get Dr. Lesh's really cool moment where everyone's kind of hunkering down and sleeping in the living room. And Robbie kind of starts talking about why are they here? Like, what's going on? And she, you know, she gives that whole monologue. You know, some people believe that when you die, your soul goes to heaven and then talks about other souls and why they might be confused and things like that. And I thought it was a beautiful monologue, you know, from um, Beatrice Strait. Yes. She really, really did a great job there. She's so soulful when she does it and so touching and so respectful of the parent process. You know, some people believe, you know, and it was, uh, it was a really, really cool moment. It's one of my favorite moments of the film. I agree. I think that her performance there and that monologue itself is very, very good. I think when she comes over and, you know, her hands are shaking and she's, you know, drinking out of her flask and offering it to Diane. Right. And like yeah. it creates a moment where they sort of bond with each other. She's like, I understand you're going through a bad situation and it's my job to sort of help you through it, or at least understand exactly what it is and we can do it together. And it really creates a dynamic and characters that we see again throughout the film. Like Beatrice Strait will again reassure Diane from time to time and say like, we will help you solve this problem. And it's just, it's really, really good. And it's very quiet. I love that it's all delivered in whispers and it's just incredibly cinematic and the entire environment of that scene is great. Yeah. And you know, it made me think about the utility of these characters a little bit because Dr. Lesh, you know, isn't she enough? She does such a great job. She, she feels such a great and needed role in this story. And yet I love Tangina so much, almost coming in like a deus ex machina to save the day, 
you know, but Dr. Lesh is just so great. And it's almost like Dr. Lesh was brought in as like a story utility to say, this is a professional and this is above them. This is above their pay grade. It ups the stakes. Yeah. And then Tangina comes in and just, you know, as a force of nature and just kind of takes care of it or does she, you know? So I think there's some really careful story work done here, you know, and, and as much as these, you know, characters fill a function and have utility, definitely have, souls and they're not hollow and they serve a really cool emotional purpose you're absolutely right and i think some of the things that we can learn about these characters quickly and you know aside from their utility is like uh the face ripoff scene and the wormy chicken scene and who cares man that's my least favorite scene in the whole movie it just doesn't fit it's inconsistent it's it's based off of a character we don't care about like what is going on here? And it was the very last thing to be filmed. And I'm wondering if it was like Cooper's thing, like, Hey, I'm going to do this. And this is the one thing that Spielberg has nothing to do with. And I'm just going to fucking do it. Well, I think it shows like it, it, it ramps up how scary the house is. Like these people are professionals and they've been in lots of situations and they think that they're well, well seasoned and can handle anything. Right. I mean, as long as it's a matchbox car going very slowly across the floor or whatever. But it's just so weird. Like he goes into the kitchen, you know, and like, I guess make yourself at home. But who's going to like at three in the morning start frying up a steak? Let's take the steak out of the lights. Like this is a naked steak in the fridge. And we're going to like put the naked steak on the naked counter. (laughs) And then we're going to pull out a frying pan. Meanwhile, we're going to take out a naked chicken wing and put it in your mouth. So you can have chicken wings and steak at three in the morning. Or whatever. And then, yeah, the whole thing happened. It was just like a, it just seemed like such a transparent setup to me. Well, obviously, you don't smoke enough pot if you haven't felt the need to have steak or chicken wings at three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) I mean, like, I don't know. I think, again, though, I think these scenes go to show you what Tangina says later on, you know, and knows what scares you, right? And so it's just a way to show that they can do whatever they want to. I don't think it was supernatural. I think that, you know, if that's the way that Diane Freeling stores her meat, it's going to be a little maggoty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that chicken was cooked. You know, and I think that, you know, (laughs) eating rotten food made him hallucinate. (laughs) I will say, because I know I've talked on this podcast before about my hatred of maggots. I just cannot stand the fuckers. (laughs) They're the nastiest things on earth. And I think I think we can pinpoint why I have this. This is probably the earliest piece of like movie that has maggots in it that I would have seen. And I just like grasped onto it and ran with it. Outside of maybe Suspiria? Well, I, I saw Suspiria much later in life. Like this was okay. the first one. So I, I think that well, I think this my close up of those maggots versus and like it's Suspiria so is mostly fucking like gross. throwing rice on people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate those fucking maggots in that chicken <laughs> to this day. I will not take a piece of chicken out of If we had KFC tonight and I wanted a piece of it, I would still put it into the microwave and cook the shit out of it. I will not bite into cold chicken. God, I just had this <laughs> flashback to student bodies where the father comes and finds like the piece of chicken on the counter <laughs> yeah. that's had a bite out of it <laughs> yeah, and then tapes right. it back on and puts it into the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Unless I forget how fucking disgusting that kitchen was just from one night of babysitting. So. <laughs> Anyway, back to Poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, after that night of terror, Dana goes to friends, you know, and then they send Robbie to grandma's house in a taxi, which I'm just like, 
the social capital this country must have had back in the 80s versus now is just incredible. And if you don't know what I mean by social capital, the trust, right? The the trust that we have in each other in a society, right? Like leaving all the stories that our grandmothers tell us, you know, and mothers tell us about like leaving the doors unlocked and who cares and blah, 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 whatever. But <laughs> like putting your child alone in a taxi... <laughs> <laughs> don't don't discount it because I I know people who have put their children into Ubers to take them so alone. So it still happens today. Yeah, I guess. I mean, still, it's just I. I'm sorry. I just watched Deep End of the Ocean. Okay. Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm fresh off of Deep End of the Ocean, and I am thinking about that. And you know, I just somewhere Michelle Pfeiffer is screaming at you at the top of her lungs. He had the dog with him. What the fuck is that gonna do? I don't know. Eva seems like a really nice dog. He's not gonna do anything. But yeah, so like that. That's the first thing that occurs to you, right? And then the next thing that I was like, how far away does Grandma? all live it's a long ass fucking expensive taxi ride i was just like can't you drive him yourself Mm. but that's neither here nor there i feel like this is a side horror movie of robbie and the taxi driver but i don't (laughs) want to get too much (laughs) it's a little too disturbing he's been through enough and he has more to go through yeah (laughs) but then an hour and 15 minutes into the film tangina arrives i am addressing the living (laughs) <laughs> what a wonderful character oh i love her so much and she really comes in and like she's she's a presence right away mm-hmm. she like proves herself as to her function in the movie and her like you know career they quickly establish her abilities mm-hmm. and you know and then she sits everyone down and she just like lays down the law and says this is what's going on in this house yeah she you makes know? everyone kind of kneel around her and she gives the beast monologue Mm-hmm. which i just love it's so it's like the monologue of the movie right i don't yeah. know what hovers over this house but it was strong enough to punch a hole into this world and take your daughter from you you know it says things only a child can understand and i feel like that's the creepiest part like what an oh shit moment in this movie i love the fact that before she goes into the beast part of that monologue she takes the time to reassure diane right mm-hmm She's like, your child is alive and in this house. You know, it's the, she answers the questions that need to be answered first, right? Mm-hmm. We have these people that are going through all this stuff. And she's like, come get down here with me on my level. And let me tell you that your daughter is alive. And then she's like, now everyone else come in. And here's what we have to do to solve the problem. And it's just like a riveting moment and just so well acted. Yeah. You know what? And, and I feel like even though she's like the most famous thing about this movie besides Carol Ann and everything else, you know, I feel like she's like one of the most famous things about this movie, but, and certainly the most memed character, I would say, but <laughs> you know, you know, everyone's like, well, she doesn't actually clean the house. The house isn't actually clean. You know, the beast is still there. It goes after him, blah, blah, blah. But they've been dealing with this for weeks. And I would say within two hours of her showing up at that house, they have Carol Ann back. Yep. That's what matters. That's a good track record, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, like, and the house kind of was clean. So let's get into that. You know, I mean, like her job was done. So she creates this plan of going into the light to rescue Carol Ann because she knows that, you know, by location is happening. You can go in and come out and stay within the house at the same time. Yeah. And I love the creepy details about that, you know. Make sure that when you put the test objects through, in this case, tennis balls, that they come out written the same and in your handwriting and your handwriting. I know that's that is such so a creepy, creepy detail. 
It was like, I have the tennis ball. It's my handwriting. Just the fact that you could have thrown a tennis ball in there and somebody else could have wrote something on it is just like Make sure something else isn't in there intercepting everything and then trying to trick us. Like the fact that that could happen is creepy. Yeah. Love it. And obviously, yeah, she had to distract the people with by using Caroline herself to get her to go towards the light, get the people to go and cross over into it, stop Caroline and distract the beast with everyone else leaving. You know, so that's a lot of balls in the air. <laughs> More than two. <laughs> Those are three balls. Yeah. So and I also love this is one of my favorite points in the movie and cry number three for me, by the way is when they have finally decided that Diana's going to go into the light and get her daughter. And I think that that is uh, very powerful. Such a powerful, wondrous like Spielberg moment. Because even in the height of terror throughout this movie, there are moments of awe and wonder mm-hmm. as part of it in equal measure. And I think that's something that a lot of horror movies forget about. Like We're dealing with something that's like supernatural and there's like this other side to it that's not just scary you know and poltergeist really does a good job at that and they have that wonderful romantic moment where they kiss with the light you know it's this, yep. this movie magic moment you know and that is my cry number three and that is it's such a good moment but it's also so, it just to me that's like one of the number one contrasts between it and like the remake because that that whole scene is basically turned into a joke in the in mm. the remake he makes this crappy joke, you know, and goes in, you know, and it's it's not it's not magical. It's just uh, in contrast, it's just night and day. It's soulless. Well, I know that we, we, we will spend a little time talking about sequels and remakes, right? So we'll have some opportunity to discuss the differences. Yeah. So that's not a cry for me so much as it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, but when Carolyn gets back and wakes up finally in that bathtub, you know, because mm-hmm. they're like trying to it's kind of like a rebirth moment, right? They're putting them in that hot bathtub, you know, trying to like get them back up to life in the real world. And Carol Ann opens her eyes and says, Hey daddy. That's when yep. I lose it. Cry number four. Cry number two for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so sweet. Cause he's, he's trying so hard to wake them up, you know, and I, I get the idea from Steve's character that he, he wants to do something as a father. He feels the need to do something. And he's, constantly i don't know i'm not even like being rebuffed but put into a a role where he feels like he's a secondary parent right they have that scene where she's like tangina says to yell at her and he's like no i don't do that but he has to do it anyway step out of his like shoes for a minute Mm -hmm. and then like right after that where she's talking about you know the beast he sheds a single tear like right behind diane like he wants to do things so badly and when he sees them in that bathtub Mm -hmm. you know and he's like just doing whatever he can to get them back to life. And when she wakes up and says, Hey daddy, like nothing was ever wrong. You know, it's just so incredibly like satisfying and validating for him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just good. I love it. Yeah. And of course, after all that, we get the, this house is clean. False ending. <laughs> I love how Dangina like takes her glasses off and attempts to look good, but doesn't touch her fucked up hair at all. She does. Got a camera. She goes like this a little bit, like, <laughs> Wisps it back. <laughs> this house is clean. Ugh. Yeah. And then we venture into Act Four, Night of the Beast. Whoa. Whoa. So 
this is when, if you're first watching the movie, you're probably thinking that, you know, we see their moving day. You probably think they're going to wrap up and have some sort of Jerry Springer final thought and then credits yeah. are going to roll, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's about the time when Carol and, and Robbie are going to bed and Diane starts making her bath where they're doing some visual storytelling there that you're like, okay, this is not over. You know, why would we be seeing this right before credits roll? It doesn't make sense. That's right. You know, by the way, I would never have let my children sleep in that room again. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I will, I will, I will die on the hill calling like Steve and Diane Freeling, like awesome parents and a really good couple. But when he's like, okay, I have to go meet my soon to be ex boss. And if the kids get tired, just let them go to sleep. And then we'll go to the motel. I'd have been like, y'all just go to the motel and I'll meet you there. I mean, like, come on. But hey, the movie's not over yet. We have things to do. But I certainly wouldn't have let my children even fall asleep in that room. Yeah. (laughs) Especially without anyone like close by or, you know, it's just, I don't think he would have done it. It It's a little hard to believe even at that point that Steve would have even been like, okay, yeah, they're sleeping back in their rooms again. Yeah. No. (laughs) But you have to do something to make the rest of the movie happen. Right. And I mean, yeah, you know, I almost would have had it them, you know, camping out in the living room with her taking a quick bath upstairs or something and, you know, something else, but you know, it's still, it works. I, this is the first time I really thought about it, but I'm trying to look past my gigantic throbbing nostalgia boner. <laughs> Don't just jerk it off. Okay. <laughs> well, we've ran with that analogy anyway. So then we get, you know, the giant gimbal room where Diane is getting, you know, thrown about well, up, up the walls and across the ceiling and, it pulling up her nightgown and things like that. And originally right? that was supposed to be much, much worse, according to Toby Hooper. Like Spielberg toned it down because they had like fingerprints going into her flesh and stuff and like a oh, bunch yeah, of other stuff happening. Much, and I'm just like, I don't need a rape scene at the end of Poltergeist at this point. Well, I mean, we already have a ghost rape movie, right? So we don't need to see another one, yeah, frankly. But so. um aside from that that little uh terrible scene with diane in the ceiling we have robbie getting attacked by that hideous fucking clown and that's what most younger people when they see this movie that's their takeaway is that clown scene apparently that was mine (laughs) that was the one that that freaked me the most out you know when i first watched it as a kid yeah i so i um i always remembered that you know it's stuck with me for a very long time and i do not like clowns right chris knows this i just to me the horror of this film is so much more like familial and existential you know, than than it was when I was a kid, when it was literally that fucking clown mm-hmm. in the tree. You know, everything that basically happens to Robbie. <laughs> yeah, poor Robbie. My God. I mean, yes, Carol Ann gets sucked into the other dimension, you know, <laughs> but like bad shit happens to Robbie at every fucking turn. I'm like that poor fucking kid. Yeah, let's not even God. get into what happens to him in the sequel. Jesus Christ, those fucking braces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah talk about gimmick <laughs> yeah and then of course as that's happening it's yet again we're getting the sense that this is a distraction you know and that the closet door opens and you know it becomes like this like mouth with tongue tentacles and you know yeah yeah so I yeah and 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 then of course it's the 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 big whole thing where you know Diane escapes she gets to see the monster thing which is still a cool effect it looks like it's underwater yeah. and everything she gets she drops into the pool we see the corpses you know what do you think about the whole built this on a graveyard thing 
without moving the bodies. Like to me, it almost cheapens the beast thing. Like it's almost just like a, a subplot that this kind of extracurricular incidental to the main thing happening. Well, I think that the beast itself, and from what I would assume is a demon, right? And not a ghost. And it sort of feeds off the emotion and anger of these ghosts that are part of the cemetery. So I think the beast is drawn to that area because these people exist in this home. Mm -hmm. I think the beast is the catalyst for everything that happens in the movie. But I think that without having a reason to have all these spirits in the house, then there's there's nothing else in the movie. So I think that leaving the bodies under the ground is very important. For poltergeist, you know, but yeah. people and we'll get more into this later. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I and I like this part of the movie. I really like it when the bodies are coming out of the ground and Diane is screaming in the pool. It's gross. It's scary. Um, when the coffins are popping out of like different places in the house when they're trying to escape and you get to see like the bodies coming out of it. Like, it's a very viscerally scary, horrifying moment. And it's very action packed. I mean, probably the most action packed part of this entire film is when they're trying to escape their home finally and steve gets this uh final kind of confrontation with teague whenever all of this shit is going down because he arrives with him and you see mm-hmm. all the coffins coming up you know and he gets his oscar moment or his <laughs> <laughs> razzy moment <laughs> oh no it's okay he just i mean he takes it a little too far that's all it's okay. you did move the bodies <laughs> you son of a bitch you love the bodies and you only move the headstones you only move the headstones why 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 <laughs> 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 it's a little melodramatic yeah it kind of pulls but... me out of it a little bit <laughs> but the look on james Carrey's face while he's screaming at him is priceless though. yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that man is in for a world of comeuppance yeah <laughs> and then we get that moment where we realize this house sucks <laughs> literally yes <laughs> It implodes and it goes like really cool effect still and uh gets kind of pulled piece by piece back into the into the place where the closet was i, I guess well by god if steve doesn't have that melodramatic moment his daughter dana certainly does when she pulls up in her friends and she's like what's going on ah, what's happening? <laughs> and she's like bright ass like, hickey on her neck too <laughs> that's right two of them <laughs> I was like, you didn't go to dinner. You were dinner. I was just like, stop. And then he's like, get in the car. Get in the car. I was just like, They're, can these people just escape, please? Like, everyone get in the fucking car. Fumbling for keys and trying to find their right key. And I was just like, no, nobody in real life. Like, everyone knows what key fits your fucking car. Yeah. So get the hell out of there. But they had to have that one less body, like, hit the windshield because it was, you know, gross. But it's also kind of a validating moment because the entire neighborhood is erupting into chaos at this point. This thing is clawing at reality to try and pull in this house. Like, one last desperate attempt to get Carol Ann in there, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's pulling in the whole neighborhood with him, you know? Fires coming out of all the, you know, sewer drains and shit. And yeah, it's uh, pretty incredible to to see, but it's also validating because everyone's seeing it too. You know, they're not the only ones and they make their escape. And Rob was asking me today, he was just like, so why is it just their house that's doing all this? And I'm like, well, it's the only house that we're privy to, right? I was like, obviously the cemetery is very large. We can see from that scene on the hill with Teague that it stretches way far back. And I mean, 
So I was like, it's safe to say, since we see, you know, coffins popping up on corners and things like that, that there are bodies all over the place. God knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. But the beast itself wanted to be in that particular house. Exactly. That was the beast focus. Well, yeah. And I think it might be for a couple different reasons, but we'll get into that later as well. Yeah. So they make their way to the Holiday Inn. (laughs) Wait. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just read your note. The Holiday Inn. Holiday end. <laughs> That's funny. It's stupid, but it's funny. You get a really memorable scene. It's when they've they've checking into their room. Uh Steve is once again trying to fumble for a key, but Robbie has it at this point, right? They get in there, they slam the door, open it, push the TV out. Yeah. And then pan away from everything. Yeah. Right? I love that little detail of them just pushing the TV out. And it's a perfect ending to the film. You know, it is. It really is. And then you start to get that really nice, like, score yeah. playing with all the la la la's in the back. It's, <laughs> it's a good ending to this movie. Yeah, um, it's Carol Ann's theme. You know, and of course, it was originally there was lyrics to it. And it's called "Bless This House," and you can look that up. And there's actually like choirs that have sung it, like uh, on YouTube, that you can see. Yeah, it weirds me out when I hear the lyrics to it, though. <laughs> so. so let's talk a little bit about the characters and the cast. The cast, especially, I think that we'd be remiss. And talking about Poltergeist and not talk about some of the performances by these actors. Yeah. So. And Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper wanted virtually unknown actors to play the Freelings because they wanted to add a realism to the family that would be, you know, off balance to the ghost story. They felt that if the audience watched well-known stars, then it would take away from the realistic feel of the characters. And I have to agree. Yeah, I totally get that and would stand by that, you know, as a from a casting perspective. You want people that, because you don't want people to show up and just see someone in a movie. It's like watching George C. Scott and <clears throat> The Changeling, right? He's a, a famous actor at that point, And it's a little bit more believable to see someone on screen that you just don't know. And I think a lot of this cast, in fact, is like either character actors or yeah. like, you know, people that have been around for a very long time, but are given a chance to shine in a movie and people would not sort of know what they were before. Yeah. I mean, like at this point, if it's a high concept, like I don't want to see someone like, I don't know, Sam Rockwell, you know, in a movie (laughs) because it's just kind of thinks Sam Rockwell, you know, (laughs) I see what you did there, (laughs) but Joe Beth Williams in this movie to me is just fan fucking fantastic. I, she really is. Oftentimes, when I have had conversations with other friends about like, you know, best performances by actress, you know, especially things that weren't, you know, sort of nominated or regarded in the awards circuit, I always bring up Jobeth Williams in Poltergeist. I think that she is just so good and so believable and so natural in this movie. And you know, she would go on to play other mothers in dire situations. She played the mother of Adam Walsh in that TV movie, Adam. And, you know, I mean, like she she was really good at that type of character, I feel. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't have got to know that about her as an actress if she weren't in Poltergeist. Agreed. Uh, Craig T. Nelson, I thought, is also really good in this movie. Coach. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. And I would Incredible. later go on to see him as a comedic actor only, right? But he's always the dad from Poltergeist. He's always Steve Freeling to me. And I think the more that I watch Poltergeist as an adult, I sort of recognize him as an actor a lot more than I did on previous viewings. I think he is a very understated, very quiet performance, except when he doesn't have to be quiet and he's screaming in someone's face, right? He just runs the gamut of emotions. Yeah. But he really is a good actor and lets his face like do the, the, the storytelling. Well, let's face it. These were meaty parts for both parents in this film. Yes. 
And I should hope to God that they sit back and look at their career and would go to Poltergeist as like one of the best things they've ever oh, done. Of course, I'm sure they would, you know, um, especially for this first one, because they both have to go through so many emotional acrobatics throughout the film. So I guess that sort of leads us um, to the kids, right? Yeah. And I mean, like Dana and Robbie are sort of bit parts, right? Uh, Robbie goes through a lot of hell and, oh yeah, you know, the other Poltergeist movie, you know, the sequel as well as he, this one. He's like a linchpin moments though in the film, you know, and mm-hmm. I think he did an excellent job. You know, he's got a lot working for him. I mean, him and his buck teeth. And <laughs> especially when it's like in front of the static on the TV and it's really showing in silhouette. It's always right? been distracting to me. I was just like, oh my God, look at those teeth. Well, that's why he had braces in the sequel. <laughs> so, yeah. But, uh, and like Dana is really to me just there to show sort of how long Steve and Diane have been together. They have two really young kids and they have a much older one. So they have a very long history of, together in, in a relationship. And so, I mean, that, that's what her purpose is because she's hardly in the movie, right? Well, you know, it's interesting because if you look at the novelization, Dana, you know, because he does actually mention there, like, she was 16 and his wife is 32. Like, where does that put his wife? Like, so in the novelization, it's told that actually Diana is his second wife. Oh, really? And that Dana is a daughter from his previous marriage. Oh, yeah. I mean, I did not know that. I've, I've never read the novelization. There's so a reason they don't look anything alike. Like yeah. each other, right? Well, and she is like commenting on hair and things. I mean, they seem close mm-hmm. though. Even if she is her stepmother, she's, they seem very close to each yeah. other. I like Dr. Lesh quite a bit. And I know that Beatrice Strait is a very, very good actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie Network, yep. go watch it. Yep. She was excellent <laughs> in that. Of course, she was kind of a, a surprise because she's kind of a bit role in that she does an excellent job for the a little bit that she's in Network, but she does mm-hmm. such a good job. She won some awards. Yeah. I mean, talk about a monologue heavy movie and she has some good like times in that. Mm-hmm. I just, she's, she's a really good character actress. Um, and then we have Zelda Rubenstein who plays Tangina yeah. and I think really steals the show in this, right? Aside from Carol Ann, but yeah. So you say Zelda Rubenstein and get all over like the making of, so I keep hearing people say Zelda Rubenstein. And so I kind of corrected myself just because that's all the the way that like everyone else like refers to her. So I, I'd be interested to see like what she says. I mean, I've never seen Young Frankenstein, but it's either way. It's acceptable, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> Another movie I've been telling you to watch for years. And we're going to talk about it on this podcast eventually. I'm saving it for that, for sure. Okay. But yeah, so Zelda Rubenstein or Stein in this movie, I think is good. She's a very memorable character. I think she comes in and she, you know, just gets the job done as an actress in a very memorable way. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know how it was written, if it was written for her to be like a littler person or to have that kind of like affected voice or whatnot. Or they just found Zelda Rubenstein and like cast her in it. And it was just a perfect fit, you know? Yeah. James Karen, who plays Mr. Teague, um, is a, a horror favorite of mine because he's in return of the living dead and return of the living dead Two, And he makes me laugh so much in those movies. And he has a very different kind of character here, but he still has some comedic moments. He's also one of, one of my favorite episodes of the golden girls. So I just, I like that. Eric. Like, I like, I like that actor a lot, you know, God rest his soul. Yeah. And like the, the rest of the cast, I think that the two people that we get to see the most as far as like big characters is Ryan and Marty, the two um, assistants to Dr. Lush. And I mean, they're good, you know? And, um, but ultimately I think the, the star of this movie is Heather O'Rourke. 
Right. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. I think she's the focus of the film. But I don't know if she's the star, you know, because she's gone for <laughs> essentially like the entire meaty portion of it, except for her voice. Yeah. And maybe just people like they watched her and they were sort of like transfixed because she's, she's a super cute girl. She got that stark blonde hair and that you know, very like dramatic bang or whatever. <laughs> and she she looks like a little doll. And I mean, I think that people sort of like gravitated toward her and like liked her as a, a child. I think that and it, it's not like they were trying to give her a lot of things to do as a child actor. She had very few lines. Um, but she delivered them well and she mm-hmm. acted like a kid and she was cute, you know, yeah. later on in some of the other poltergeist movies, when she has a lot more work to do, it's not, not quite as good, but it's not her fault really. Well, I she also that, isn't there just yeah. to be cute. She has a little bit of a personality, you know, we see yeah. that she's a little bit, you know, she has something going on there, you know, from her interaction with like the goldfish and her mom in certain instances, you know, right after burying Tweety and having tears stream down her face, she's like, can I get a goldfish now? You know, like there's, there's, she's not just there to be a cute little girl. She's there to, you know, actually have a personality. And she does too. You can obviously see that she's a very caring little girl and she's being raised right by her parents, especially during that burial scene when they're, you know, putting Tweety into the ground and she's like, you know, for when he's lonely, for when he's hungry, for when it's nighttime, right? Mm-hmm. It's all very cute and sweet. And, but she's the Mental, but she's not scared per se, right? No, she's not you scared know, of death, like Robbie. Sure. Like Robbie's scared of all this stuff. You know, he's like the light on. You know, um, well, actually, she's the one that wants the light on. But um, mm-hmm. you know, he's scared of the tree and the storm and everything else. And it just looks like she gives no fucks. You know, when he's in there com- comforting Robbie, she's just like, "Hey, want to talk to my phone?" Yeah. <laughs> and he is the character that gets up and like covers that clown doll early in the film, right? I mean, if if he's, she's going to say, like, it knows what scares you, it clearly went to Robbie. It was like, we know what scares him because he keeps doing all the shit The tree and the it. clown, yeah. Yeah, I know. Like, those two things. Just go for those. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I think overall, like, the cast in this movie did a very good job. Um, even to the point where I think that Joe Beth Williams sh- deserved, at the very least, an Oscar nomination for this performance. I think that... Um, yeah. The- yeah. It will always, for me, be like one of the worst atrocities the Academy has ever done. It's not giving her a nomination for this. Yeah, yeah, because I feel like a lot of others did. Like, it's certainly Saturn Awards. Mm-hmm. I think that as far as like powerhouse acting, I think that she's just phenomenal in this. I will always use her as an example of good acting from a woman on the verge, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just a standout performance. So uh, let's talk about what we're not talking about. <laughs> <laughs> whatever do you mean well the you know it the creative credit and the know, controversy what the controversy yeah <laughs> yeah i think we need to because uh when people talk about poltergeist aside from how fucking good it is they talk about who directed this movie really toby hooper or Steven Spielberg. So what we've done here is we've collected some background information for you and uh, specific points of credit for Hooper, as well as some specific points of credit for Spielberg. And then we're going to kind of uh, weigh in and kind of decide where we land on, on this after presenting all of the evidence. All right. So let's hear some of this evidence. Well, first the background, right? So Spielberg had a clause in his contract, as we stated at Universal Studios, that prevented him from directing any other film while preparing for E.T., you know, and Hooper stated that the core concept of Poltergeist was his and that he pitched to Spielberg after he turned down the offer to direct Night Skies, intended, of course, then to be a sequel to Close Encounters, which would 
eventually kind of split to become E.T. and Poltergeist, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's sort of what happened. They they took the idea of Dark Skies and it sort of went in two different directions, right? Like, made yeah. two different movies. And I think Spielberg really wanted to do both. Like, he really wanted to do Poltergeist. It almost ended up like a coin toss. And uh, I think that's, you know, based on that contract, he kind of looked for someone that he could trust, but still be, you know, he has that, he doesn't have very many writing credits. And on Poltergeist, he has a writing credit and a producer credit. You know, so I feel like uh, already there's there's some interest there as far as like adding fuel to the fire of the controversy. Yeah, I know that um, I have read some places that Toby Hooper has been, you know, interested in like the afterlife and ghost stories. And his early work is not about that. And he just wanted to make a movie like that, not about aliens, which I think is so funny because some of the movies that he went to direct immediately after poltergeist are space movies and um involve aliens very closely yeah. so spielberg was actually quoted as saying if uh if et is a whisper poltergeist is a scream hmm. and i think that's the stupidest quote i've ever heard anyway yeah. so <laughs> spielberg was also quoted as saying toby isn't a take charge sort of guy. If a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I jump in and say what we could do. Toby would nod agreement. And that became the process of collaboration. (laughs) 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 Or maybe he's a bully. So I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Because like, as we know, if the stories of Spielberg are never really negative from any of the stories. Well, let's just say I have come across a quote. Okay. Okay. So um, cast members were starting to speak on record that Hooper was AWOL sometimes during filming. Mm. And years later, a woman named Julia Phillips uh, wrote a book called You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again, where she was sort of spilling the tea on lots of people in Hollywood, right? This book came out in 1991. And she says this about Spielberg. We hadn't spoken in four years, but we would run into each other on the NGM lot where he is directing Poltergeist. He is supposed to be producing it, but Toby Hooper, the director, it is whispered, has lost his cookies and Stephen has to step in. I wonder if Stephen has been the first to whisper all these Hooper rumors. It would fit into his M.O. What? Yeah, I don't think she likes Steven Spielberg very much. And she, I mean, she's alluding to the fact that he was, you know, sort of creating these rumors to, you know, at least like show that he's sort of stepping in where he shouldn't be or taking more responsibility than a producer. But I mean, I like, know. this is also coming from someone who wrote a whole book about gossip other against people. everyone yeah. they knew in Hollywood. So I know. I just, I thought it was interesting because, you know, in, in all my life, I have never heard someone say something negative about Steven Spielberg. Yeah. The Directors Guild of America opened an investigation into the question of whether or not Hooper's official credit was being denigrated by statements Spielberg had made, apparently claiming authorship. And this was the first reported in the Los Angeles Times article on May 24th, 1982, the same article from which the aforementioned quote from Spielberg was first obtained. The investigation ended in the arbitrator's ruling that MGM UA Entertainment Company must pay $15,000 to director Toby Hooper because the studio gave producer Steven Spielberg a bigger credit than Hooper got in its trailers. Although, also noting that broader issues of dispute exist between producer-writer Spielberg and the director, given that the original damages were of $200,000 were originally sought by DGA. (laughs) So the fallout obviously damaged the relationship between Hooper and Spielberg. Yeah. In response to the controversy, Spielberg printed an open letter 
to Hooper in The Hollywood Reporter that said, Regrettably, some of the press has misunderstood the rather unique creative relationship which you and I shared throughout the making of Poltergeist. I enjoyed your openness in allowing me, as writer and a producer, a wide berth for creative involvement, just as I know you were happy with the freedom you had to direct Poltergeist so wonderfully. Through the screenplay, you accepted a vision of this very intense movie from the start, and as the director, you delivered the goods. You performed responsibly and professionally throughout, and I wish you great success on your next project, which ended up being Life Force. And right after that was Invaders from Mars, the remake. So so boiled down, it seems there may have been some kind of alleged unspoken agreement mm-hmm. and understanding between Spielberg and Hooper that Hooper was there as a kind of first assistant director who would hold the reins whenever Spielberg couldn't be there while working on E.T., this is all alleged, and this is kind of my assumption, but Spielberg would control and direct the movie while Hooper would get a director's credit. All of this was done in order to bypass a clause of Spielberg's contract to develop and direct E.T. So I have one more quote for you for talking about Spielberg's credit as, as to being a director on the film, right? So in Fangoria in early 1982, before the movie was released, he gave a statement and he said, I thought I would be able to turn Poltergeist over to a director and walk away. I was wrong. Going forward, if I write it myself, I'll direct it myself. I won't put someone else through what I what I put Toby through, and I'll be more honest in my contributions to a film. Okay. So, so I think that was Spielberg's understanding, but maybe not Toby's. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> so uh, what are some things for like Toby Hooper's credit in directing okay. this movie? In the 2012 Rue Morgue article, prepared for the 30th anniversary, interviews on the film were compiled from several cast mem- and crew members in response to the magazine's query about the authorship issue. Cast members came unanimously on the side of Hooper. James Karen himself said, Toby had a hard time on that film. It's tough when a producer is on set every day, and there's always been a lot of talk about that. I consider Toby my director. That's my stand on all of those rumors. Okay. Martin Casella stated, and he played Marty, Mm -hmm. so much of Poltergeist looks and feels like a Spielberg movie, but my recollection is that Toby was mostly directing. Mostly. (laughs) Oliver Robbins, who's Robbie, said... The guy who sets up the shots, blocks the actors, and works with the crew to create a vision is the director. In those terms, Toby was the director. He's the one who directed me anyway. Okay. And director Mick Garris, who was a publicist on the film and visited the set on several occasions, said Toby was always calling action and cut. Toby had been deeply involved in all the pre-production and everything. But Steven is a guy who will come in and call the shots. And so... You're on your first studio film, hired by Steven Spielberg, who is enthusiastically involved in the movie. Are you going to say, stop that, let me do this? Which Toby ended up doing sometimes, but Toby was a terrific filmmaker. I don't think it's that Steven was controlling. I think it was that Steven was enthusiastic, and nobody was there to protect Toby. But all the pre-production was done by Toby. Toby was there throughout. Toby's vision is very much realized there, and Toby got credit because he deserved credit. Okay. That's all I have for for Toby Hooper. <clears throat> all right. So, uh, what are some things about Steven Spielberg and his being the director of this film? Okay. Co-producer Frank Marshall told the Los Angeles Times that the creative force of the movie was Steven. Toby was the director and was on the set every day, but Steven did the design for every storyboard, and he was on the set every day except for three days when he was in Hawaii with Lucas. What were they doing in Hawaii? 
they always go to Hawaii to uh, talk about the next MacGuffin for the next Indiana Jones movie. Really? Yeah, because the next movie he did was um, after E.T. and Poltergeist was Indiana Jones' Last Crusade. Or yeah, the Temple of Doom. In a 2007 interview with Ain't It Cool News, Rubenstein uh, discussed her recollections of the shooting process. She famously said that Stephen directed all six days that she was on set. Toby set up the shots and Stephen made the adjustments. She also alleged that Hooper allowed some unacceptable chemical agents into his work. (laughs) And (laughs) when she went into audition for Hooper and Spielberg at that moment, that Toby was only partially there. (laughs) Is she making some sort of moral judgment? Come on. We all know that Stephen King directed a movie, Cocaine Fuel. Well, of course you would. If I was being directed by someone half in the bag, you know, I would be frustrated (laughs) as fuck. I can imagine her saying that too. Yeah. Right? Have in the back. <laughs> I don't like. <laughs> I don't like directed drunkards. I don't know. <laughs> so the makeup and effects man Craig Reardon stated that Spielberg often had the final say, such as when his original version of the cancerous steak that he made in compliance with Hooper's specifications was ultimately vetoed by Spielberg. Although the first steak did not represent a killing amount of work. It had consumed enough time and effort, none of which I could afford to waste, that I determined in the future to make certain whatever I prepped would be approved in advance by Spielberg as well as Hooper. And the last one, director John Leonetti of Annabelle fame mm-hmm. worked as first assistant camera on the film. Oh. And, and so did his brother and was recently quoted to say it was a very intense, very fun, very technical movie to work on. There's a lot going on. And candidly, Steven Spielberg directed that movie. There is no question. However, Toby Hooper, I adore. I love that man so much. Hooper was so nice and just happy to be there. He creatively did have some input. Steven developed the movie and it was just, it was his to direct, except there was anticipation of a director's strike. So he was the producer, but really he directed it in case there was going to be a strike and Toby was cool with that. It wasn't anything against Toby. You know, every once in a while, he would actually leave the set and let Toby do a few things just because. But really, Steven directed it. (laughs) So, given all of the evidence in front of us, what do the film flamers have as a final judgment? I have to say, much like John Leonetti, I love Toby Hooper. I think that, I think his work speaks for itself. I think that in the the world of horror, he is a, a definite voice and just fantastic filmmaker i think that there are movies that we have seen takes a chainsaw massacre and it's it's sequel which is really good i think invaders from mars is fantastic and i think that toby hooper makes great films and i can sometimes see toby hooper when i'm watching a toby hooper movie right i don't see toby hooper when i watch poltergeist it doesn't seem like a hooper film to me Mm. right it seems like a spielberg movie yeah and i know that I mean, executive producers are allowed to come on set and they're allowed to, you know, say they want things to be changed or what they wanted to do. But more than just that, like he wrote the script for this movie or at least partially. And I think it's pretty clear that he really, really wanted to direct Poltergeist. I mean, I would go so far as to say maybe more than E.T., right? Yeah, I would almost say that, too. I mean, he, he helped to write it. He did the storyboarding. He was producing it. He was all up in the pre-production right alongside, you know, Hooper. But I feel like part of the reason why he did Hooper, because Hooper seems kind of passive based on everything that I've seen 
and heard, you know, and Spielberg obviously is a force. He is a personality and he goes in there and he just is so passionate, not in an angry way, but just like an excited child way. And he knows how to talk to people. He knows how to get stuff done. He knows how to direct. And so he just innately does it. He's not going to just like sit back and become, you know, not (laughs) Steven Spielberg. And so I think what would happen is that Toby Hooper was kind of taking the wheel when Spielberg wasn't there or for the the tasks that weren't something that Spielberg was focused on at the time. And if Hooper didn't have an immediate answer for things, Spielberg would step in. So I feel like the answer is that yes, Spielberg directed this film, but so did Toby Hooper. Yeah. I feel like it's a cop-out. Like people are going to think this is a cop-out, but it's the truth. It's not black and white. There's a gray area here. Different actors have different stances. The people that were on set every day are more on the side of Spielberg. Some of the actors say it was Toby, you know, because they they like him. They like both. And I think that the truth of the matter is they kind of co-directed this movie. And that's but at the very at the very heart of it though, it's a Spielberg movie because of the writing you know, and the storyboarding and just being there every single day and and having such a passion for it. And that's why it feels like a Spielberg movie because there's a huge amount of Spielberg shots and decisions that Mm -hmm. were, you know, make it up. And that's very obvious watching this, right? We had just spent an entire month talking about Spielbergian films, right? And what it means to watch a Spielberg movie. And this is all over Poltergeist for sure. There's no denying that. Yeah. Right down to the score. Yeah. And I know that Spielberg had his people do the post-production stuff, right? Like, didn't his editors work on it? And then, you know, he chose the people for the score. And that's He had that's another part of the editor work yeah. on Poltergeist and not E.T. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, like, he really wanted to make this movie. There was no way that he could have possibly given it up, like I said in that quote, right? He thought he could. He just could not. And, and that's okay. I think that we've learned from Poltergeist at this point, because now we have people like the Russo brothers who have co-directing credit in movies and other people in horror, like the guys who just did, you know, um, ready or not. Right. We see a lot of these like tandem directors and the guys that did stranger things and yeah, you know? And so, I mean, like we see a lot of this these days that, you know, some people are good at one thing and the other was good at the other. And you, with your powers combined, you know, you have poltergeist. And yeah. so I think in a, in a way, if it were easier for them to share credit, they could have done that, but you know, they just couldn't contractually for Steven Spielberg. I mean, whatever rules they had at the time, as far as the director's guild goes, I mean, I don't know, but I mean, obviously both these men directed this movie in some sort yeah. of capacity. Yep. And that's just the answer to the question that it everyone is. asks, right? And that's definitive. I am 100% sure of it based on yeah. all of the, the evidence that we have. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with you. And you know what? I wouldn't blame Toby Hooper. You know, if this was my movie and I thought I was getting a good big break, I had gotten this job from Spielberg, you know, and all these expectations. And then Spielberg shows up and set and just directs it in my place. You know, I would have been like, okay, pass me the fucking tequila, man. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not forget at the end of Poltergeist, when the camera is pulling away from the Holiday Inn, the very first thing you see on screen is a Steven Spielberg production. Yeah, and I feel like that's a weird argument to make from you know the GGA or whatever of having Spielberg's name you know all over the trailer and everything because I feel like we see that all of the time. You know, produced by Guillermo del Toro, you know, and everything like we see that a lot and especially for unknown directors. And that's the thing is that like Toby Hooper at this point was kind of an unknown director outside of horror circles. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And so if you want a movie to be successful, you need to have a name on it. We already talked about how they wanted unknown actors. There's no name there to draw people in. Mm. Who is going to draw people in for Poltergeist? Obviously, Steven Spielberg at this point. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, if you want to make money, of course, his name is going to be all over the trailer. Yep. You know? And, I mean, essentially, 1982 became the summer of Spielberg, right? And it sort of cemented him as a box office draw. And it certainly did not help, you know, with fueling of the fire for this controversy by calling, by calling it that. Yeah. So. Now, I can understand how Toby Hooper was very upset about it. And, I mean, he may not have been that upset. <clears throat> he got some money, some extra money, you know. 15K. But, <laughs> yeah. And he went on to make really, really good horror movies that horror fans just love. And he will be deeply missed. But I would gather that his experience on Poltergeist probably wasn't the best. You know. But speaking of all that direction and all those good decisions made between the two of them, let's talk a little bit about the background, the look, the feel, the ambiance. The ambiance of this film? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is like super, like we've already said, this is, there's, there's not much to talk about here because we've said a lot already, but there's, this is like America suburbia of the 80s, like idealized, right? And oh, so yeah. someone like reaches in and like steals part of that nuclear family, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of like a reverse Alice in Wonderland. You know, it's like Alice goes through the looking glass and what is her family doing? You know, I often I mean, I, I said earlier in this episode already, I think that poltergeist is sort of the American dream, but actually a nightmare, right? The American nightmare, because mm. these people have worked so hard to get what they have. And she, she says that Diane says that as they're packing up and leaving, like we work so hard for all this, mm. right? They're seeing their dream like crumble around them. But to me, like. They, they present everything through its look and feel as suburbia and American dream and Norman Rockwelly, all that stuff. Right. And it's literally built on top of a lie, you know? So, I mean, like you don't have to like search too hard to find the themes in this movie and how, how it's creation and look and feel and ambiance sort of fit into that. Like they really try hard to make it a nuclear family from the beginning. And like the loss of its one is what's going to tear the whole thing down. Right. Yeah. What are some of the messages in this film? Obviously, like, I don't know, like too much TV. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like at the beginning of like the the TV craze in a way. Obviously, this was not the beginning of it, but it kind of reminds me of Dawn of the Dead, you know, is that the kind of that note on consumerism. You know, it's almost like, what are we gonna have to do, you know, symbolically to get this family away from the TV? <laughs> <laughs> snatch their daughter and make her voice come out of it um yeah i think that would be like i mean that's a good message i think to come out of this is that like yeah. there's tv was exploding and was everywhere right but i don't well it's i don't know the best you know it's not as strong as like something you know viewing a family around the dinner table on the cell phones or something you know there was never this moment with the freelings where they were all around the couch just not talking to each other and staring at the tv you know we don't get right. that so any message here is really really you know, almost incidental, I would say. I will say, though, that like the 80s was the time that people did start to do that with their families. I know that my family, we never had dinner around the table. We had dinner around the television, you know? And oh, opposite. Total opposite here. <laughs> really? I oh, mean, no. yeah, dinner we just, was not in front of the TV. My goodness. Oh, no. We were no. the TV family, you know? And so I can, I can see that sort of being a message on this, especially... Because, you know, we get to hear Carol Ann come from the TV so much and whatnot. We had to talk about our day. And if we didn't finish our plates, we were going to go into our room without the rest of dinner. 
<laughs> oh no there was none of that in my family this is why i got to watch so much unsolved mysteries and shit all the time so i mean like <laughs> we would we would watch after i don't know about messages in this movie aside from that i think that it's a cautionary tale to know that what you work for can be taken away from you anytime and by any means right i think that the 80s were a very tumultuous time more than just like you know, TV and, and different changes in science or whatever, but we also still had the Cold War to worry about and people were still thinking about things like that. I really feel that, uh, like people had lived through the fifties, right? Where like the American dream was quote unquote, like born. And then we had like tumultuous times in the sixties and seventies and the eighties got back to this really conservative time mm-hmm. where like people were feeling that way. And you are trying to find the American dream and getting everything you want in life. And it's so easily taken away from you. Yeah. They just did it in a really supernatural way. Well, there's more to the look and feel of this movie. Let's talk a little bit about the visual effects. Yeah. So, uh, Visual effects, I think they're like hit or miss in this movie, actually, right? Some of the effects are very, very good, and some look really fucking shoddy. Yeah. I mean, the storms still kind of look cool. The monsters still look cool. The light effects, like with the ghosts and stuff, that still looks cool. Flying objects, yeah. all that. The tornado looked like shit. The, the, mm-hmm. the tearing the face off looks like horrible shit right now. Like, oh, it, my God. Yes. So bad. I this is the same year that the thing came out, right? And so we're talking about how good the effects in the thing in the thing were, and then we have this face ripping off scene, and it it looks like the fakest piece of special effects I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, yeah. As a kid, though, it scared the shit out of me. But like today, yeah. having seen movies forever, I'm like, oh, that's garbage. Yeah, it was disturbing as a kid, but you know, like now I just look at it and I'm like, oh my god. And apparently, those are Steven Spielberg's hands ripping off the face. So. Yeah, I read that somewhere. Because <laughs> I, I, and I also read that they they created that face and they could, only had one of it, so it'd be one take. It had to be perfect, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, you can't do it, you know. And so, I mean, well, the same thing with the house because they constructed this model, this uh, bigature apparently of this house, and they shot it 300 frames per second with a gigantic like industrial vacuum behind it, <gasps> and then shot it with shotguns. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like we hope to god we got this and they played it back and it was fucking perfect and so that's the effect <laughs> in the film that's ingenious though i like it yeah i mean the visual effects in this movie are good especially i think that moment where um diane is in the hallway and she sees the beast right outside the door i love that moment i even kind of like the giant head that comes out of the closet when steve is frantically pulling the rope back to get his wife right mm-hmm. and i mean like even that's good you know and as a child it really like blew my mind yeah you know well speaking of blowing your mind let's talk about the music by jerry goldsmith la, 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 yeah i mean la. it's it's full of childlike wonder <laughs> awe moments of sheer terror and horror mm-hmm. but also with some like use of interesting like frequency like sounds yeah uh, i can get that i love this score it's one of my favorite scores horror or not such an iconic score is there theremin involved in this school? No, in fact, I think some of this is digital. You know, it would be interesting, but he has used like new instruments. I think just like two or three years prior that he created new instruments just to do like the Star Trek motion picture stuff to do like alien sounds and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. I do love this score, though. And I know it's one of your favorites. Oh, yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Such a beautiful score. It's 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 interesting that, you know, he was up against, you know, the 
you know, the biggest, you know, John Williams for E.T. And I love E.T. score, too. But I feel like there's more going on with Poltergeist score by Jerry Goldsmith. And I love that he was nominated for it and recognized for it. You know, and I love John Williams' work on E.T. But, you know, it was just a hard year. because So many classics came out that year. I mean, Vangelis did Blade Runner, for God's sake. Oh, God, that was the same year. I, um, I like the score. It's one that I can go and listen to more than some other horror movies right because i it's accessible it it brings up a lot of nostalgia for me when i hear the music Mm -hmm. so i know that music was obviously a super important part of this movie Mm -hmm. and um i do like caroline's theme i think it's really good yeah i like that i like that just not with the lyrics also the moments of of terror or whatever they're not just noise like so many horror movies now you know there's music to them as well and there's a theme for you know like the beast and things like that so i I really love some of the undercurrents of of music that you hear behind some of these monologues you know that really really is just helping every performance and every moment of the film just to hit that much higher you know and i this is one of those movies where i feel like without this score it wouldn't be half as you know impressive or or you know heartfelt i agree and i mean like there are some moments that I, I recognize every time I watch the movie and I learn something new every time I watch the movie. Like for this last viewing, there was a moment in the score where Diane is running down the seemingly like endless hallway. Mm-hmm. Right. The gag. And I can start to hear some drums and stuff in the background. And I was like, Oh, I've never noticed that before and how it sounds there, but it really does like change the way that you watch the movie. It's a very detailed score. And I think it's better than ET, honestly. But... <laughs> So, how long are we not going to talk about the other thing we're not talking about? Um, whatever do you mean? We've already talked about the director controversy. Is there something else that we're missing yeah, here? The, maybe a curse? A little curse? Yeah. A touch of a curse? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so Poltergeist is super famous for being a cursed franchise. Possibly the most famous. I would say so, right? Sometimes I hear things about movie curses and I'm like, where did that come from? I've never heard this in my entire life. But for almost the entirety of my life, I have heard that Poltergeist is a cursed movie. Oh, yeah. Right. Thank you, tabloids. So, yeah. So there was a lot of weird happenings on set on multiple, but we're really going to try and focus mainly on the first movie here. So like when Robbie, played by, of course, Oliver Robbins, is being strangled, the, the clown's arms became extremely tight and Robbins started to choke. So when he screamed out, I can't breathe, director Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper thought that the boy was ad-libbing and just instructed him to look at the camera. So when Spielberg saw Robin's face turning purple, (laughs) he ran over (laughs) and removed the clown's arms from Robbie's neck. They could have killed him. My God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of creepy, especially with that scene. You know, it's like I expected it to and be that the tree. You know, fucking like, clown! You have to like chainsaw this paper mache tree open so we can like free this kid. But no, it's the fucking clown that breaks. They made that clown way too well. That's all. Yeah. It did his job way too well. So Joe Beth Williams had a supernatural experience during the making of the film. Whenever she came home from filming, the pictures on the walls of her house were always crooked. Always. Yeah, she would correct them and then they turn back as soon as she changed. Her. Yeah. That would creep me out. And also, Zelda Rubenstein also had an experience when a vision of her dog came to her and said goodbye to her. Hours later, her mother called her and told Rubenstein that her dog had passed away that very day. Oh, that's sad. And obviously, we've got the deaths that, you know, have kind of plagued some of the larger personalities from the Poltergeist franchise, including 
wonderful Heather O'Rourke from a congenital defect, you know, misdiagnosed as Crohn's disease. So, you know, of which there was like a lawsuit about, you know, the doctors, you know, the the medical practice that was essentially misdiagnosed her for years. And she died sort of like toward the end of filming Poltergeist 3. Yeah, they had to use a double for the last mm -hmm. shot. And they didn't even want to, the director didn't want to release the film. Right. At all. And he was a pallbearer at her funeral. Oh, was he really? Yes, he was. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And of course, we have the horrific death of Dominique Dunn, who was strangled by her boyfriend. Yeah. I mean, this is something that I've always heard about Hollywood lore, right? You hear about like the tragic deaths of people in Hollywood, like Selminia, who was murdered, but she was strangled by her boyfriend and sort of like left for dead in the yeah, home. And eventually died in a coma. Yeah. Yep. Several days later. We have Lou Perry man who played Pugsley, uh, I believe the neighbor, yeah. was uh, killed by an axe murderer <laughs> about 10 years ago. And he's a Texan. Like, he's, this happened Austin. in Austin. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like, someone murdered him, stole his car, and they found his body in his home. It's very sad. And then there's more from the sequel, including Julian Beck, who played Henry Kane. He died of stomach cancer. And then Will Sampson, who played Taylor, the medicine man, died of kidney failure. And this was uh, either during or shortly thereafter the movie uh, came out. And so there's just uh there's a lot of stuff going on here and they you know the people that believe in this sort of thing say the cause is that they used real indian skeletons in the pool you know and all around the the house or whatever in the first poltergeist and that this curse was caused by that which is absolute bullshit yeah because basically every fucking movie from the beginning of time used real human skeletons they you know everyone like hanging up in your you know science lab you know uses real skeletons they're all real they're all just hooked back together and they're bleached and you know they, they put actual effects over those skeletons so when people say the the skeletons of poltergeist are real they imagine that all of the gunk on them and the eyes and the hair and all that's real no <laughs> right these, these are bleached skeletons, skeletons that Every film is used, you know, and every school has used, and they just put stuff on top of them, you know? And so this, I feel like, is just a bunch of BS. And so then people might think, well, it's the subject matter. You know, they're not being respectful of of the dead and everything else. And I'm just like, okay, magical thinking. Stop it. You know, any kind of talk about a curse for Poltergeist, especially in Dominique Dunn's case, I feel like is is really disrespectful to the horrific nature of how they how she died and every one of these people died differently and in different situations you know and you know newsflash we all die eventually all of us you know so unless we're all under some sort of you know commutative <laughs> collective curse you know I, I i don't think that there's a curse here i don't believe in curses personally and i, I feel like attributing this all to one thing is is kind of disrespectful to to each individual and in their situations it's funny you should say that because i was looking up things about the curse right and i know that some of the actors felt this like um well samson actually came in and did some sort of like smudging or you know quote-unquote exorcism of the set right after things were going weird or whatnot yeah they couldn't get up that hill to get yeah. into the um, below ground, you know, burial site in Poltergeist 2 or whatever. And the camera fell off of its tripod. And then they asked him to do something or he offered. And then the next day, everything was fine. You know, so that's the, the anecdote behind that. But I have one more quote to share with you that I found because I like this one quite a bit. It's from Zelda Rubenstein. 
And uh, they asked her a question about the curse of poltergeist. And she said, Heather died because of an undetected congenital anatomical defect. And Dominique Dunn died at the hands of an extremely ill-directed, passionate boyfriend. I think that it's pretty much a courtesy to put an end to all this superstitious crap. Thank you. I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, I completely agree. I mean, like, bad things happen on lots of movie sets, right? And, I mean, I will say that the idea of a cursed film is fun for a horror fan to, like, you know, think about for a minute. But at the end of the day, it's really not an actual thing, you know? Yeah. But if you're interested in those sort of things, I will recommend the cursed film series on Shudder. Because they they take a lot of stuff and why you know it's, it's yeah it's fun to watch but it's it's make believe it's more fun to think about you know when like prop mishaps happen you know or the whole set burns down or things like that when people don't actually die you know for yeah. me you know then it's like kind mm-hmm. of interesting you know versus when this is the case it's just there's a lot of tragedy here and there's a lot of grieving families and this movie even though it's immortal to us was just a moment in time for them. You know, so let's let's have a little bit of a, a little bit of respect. So, let's get back to kind of our little you know kind of personal experiences with Poltergeist in a vacuum, without regard to the sequels. What do you think was really going on here? And we already kind of talked about you know the beast and you know things like you know the the buried bodies underneath and why that house and how your husband kind of called you out on that and and mm-hmm. uh, let's continue that conversation a little bit I, don't, I think it's a combination of all those things right i think that if you're talking about a supernatural horror movie i think this is like the perfect storm of it right we have a plausible reason why there would be spirits in your house we have a demon who would come in because of the spirits and then we have a child that some people would consider to be a psychic right i think it's not really talked about in this particular one, but in the rest of the... I would say that, like like I said, yeah. in a vacuum, without regard to sequels, even in this film, it would be alluded to that she obviously has the ability to speak and understand and hear these spirits. Right. So whether that means she is young enough to be that pure, or she's that, cl- that much closer to the spiritual world, and or she's clairvoyant, you know, it's kind of you know besides the point a little bit but i think that would be part of it was that you got this bright light they describe her as a bright light and that the beast can use her to control the other spirits whether he's a demon or satan himself because the beast is definitely Mm -hmm. a biblical reference to satan i would say right yes you know i i don't know if she was embellishing you know based on the sequels she would be but you know, it's interesting to me. They're also breaking ground, right? With the pool. That's a part of this. It's really meant to kind of showcase the bodies and also to kind of give them a worry for sleepwalking and like drowning and everything else, which is a, you know, big concern with pools and, and, and things like that with children. Um, you know, but I, I wonder if all those things are kind of involved here. But one thing that I do like is that nothing, none of it in this film is overly explained. And I think that is always important in horror films to not show your cards too much for things you're not supposed to know. You shouldn't, you know, and that's part of the mystery. And that's part of the horror. Exactly. And you, I mean, like you, you never know in this movie, like what the initial like impetus was to make all these things happen. Right. If you're talking about breaking ground in the pool. Yeah. I think that right now we're probably all standing on burial grounds of some point in America. Right. But it, it's not bad until you break the ground and, you know, disturb that body not building on top of it 
you know and so breaking the ground i think is a huge point in this movie but and also they they make several references about carol ann being born in that house you know what does that have to do with it right and like you said none of it's fully explained nor does it have to Mm. right we don't we don't need to have a reason the reason is is that it's happening and that's it and how do we solve the problem so i think that you know for this movie there's there's so much going on and we don't for once have to say why right or ask why it it doesn't matter why all that matters is we have a family going through a crisis and what are they doing together to solve the problem mm-hmm. god every time you said solve the problem i just start singing maria in my head so okay <laughs> how do you solve a problem like the freelings how do you solve a problem <laughs> like the beast <laughs> how do you take a house and make it clean um (laughs) so if we're talking about personal anecdotes i mean like really i know that poltergeist was one of the first horror movies that i watched as a kid and i was hanging out with my mother today and we were talking about the fact that we're going to be recording poltergeist tonight and she was just like well of course you know that movie terrified you when you were a kid and i was like what do you mean like she was she said well you know you obviously like darker things like you liked um never ending story and something you know all the all those darker kids movies that came out dark crystal and so on mm-hmm. and they had recorded poltergeist off cable and thought that i could handle it it's rated pg for god's sakes and i could handle it right up until the time that clown doll <laughs> strangled robbie and my mom told me today she was like you just lost your shit essentially when that happened the first time you watched it really and yeah and so i was like well that explains you know my fear of clowns really and I was like, but I, I watched this movie a lot when I was a kid. And she was like, the, from the first time you watched Poltergeist, we couldn't keep you away from it. <laughs> like, there was nothing we could do as parents to have you not watch Poltergeist. So you watched it all the time. Yeah. And so I, I from today, I'm like, I, I don't remember the first time that I watched Poltergeist. I remember watching it a lot. But obviously, like, it really created my love of horror. I, I think that we could say, like, this is like the start of robert's love affair with horror really so i was a little bit later i didn't see it i don't think until i was uh, about 12 or 13 wow yeah and i I caught it on direct tv and um i I remember seeing the the ending first so i saw the scene with the the clown and it scared the shit out of me even then no i I was like i need to see this whole movie so the next time it was on i like i like made my sister come and watch it with me and she got scared like she couldn't watch it she had to leave i think and uh, I think I tried it again and she finally watched it with me or whatever, but I just kind of fell in love with it all by myself. And of course I was already a fan of Jerry Goldsmith. You know, I was a big fan of scores since I was fairly young, um, you know, and I just, yeah, I can't say enough. Like I, I just instantly recognized it as a classic, which it is, you know? And I, I think that when you and I talk about movies that we liked when we were younger, no matter what the age is, I mean, like younger at this point for us is very young. And uh, I think that we can agree that both of us liked Poltergeist quite a bit, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but aside from Poltergeist, we have a Poltergeist 2 and a Poltergeist 3 and a remake and another remake maybe coming out. So, like, how do you feel about some of those things? You know, I, I, I'm okay with Poltergeist 2. I haven't seen it in about 10 or 15 years. Of course, you've recently watched it and you know, basically threw up all over it. Um, Ugh, I remember God. enjoying Poltergeist three, but knowing it was a piece of garbage, um, even the first time, you know, and then I think I've seen the sequels at least two or three times each, uh, especially the second one, probably a little bit more, 
but of course they are nothing like the first one. And um, I recently, after much convincing from you over the years <laughs> that I finally watched the Poltergeist remake, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of glad I did. They did some cool stuff um, with yeah. some of the ghost effects and stuff, but everything else is trash. You know, it was like them going through the motions. It's like the studio said, we need a Poltergeist. Here's a th- something that we have the rights to and just make it, you know, and it just felt like I had no soul in comparison. And a lot of the moments that are actually like shot for shot or something are just night and day, like joyless, you know, wonderless. And, uh, you know, it, it just kind of tries to force poltergeist into the size and shape of, you know, a 2010s, you know, horror movie by the numbers. And I didn't enjoy that aspect of it at all. I thought it was, uh, I'm glad it sucked as much as it did because, you know, I, when I do think about that movie when watching, and that was what I was most afraid of, is thinking of that movie while watching Poltergeist, and that would ruin my watch of Poltergeist. The one thing that I remembered was, you know, that that kind of goodbye maybe scene where, you know, Diane's going to go into the into the light or whatever to save Carol Ann, and they have that last kind of kiss or whatever. And that moment in particular, I've noticed, I've known, I mentioned it several times and that's just such a, a huge contrast between the two films and there it is like poltergeist is warm and the new one is cold and it's doesn't take itself seriously enough at the same time it takes itself too seriously like if you haven't watched it watch it and you know let me know what you think compared to this one because i'm not you know i'm not a fan maybe in a vacuum if the original poltergeist didn't exist that the remake would be fairly well you know received and it might be, but we don't exist in that world. And we have Poltergeist, thank God. And um, yeah, that's pretty much the long and short of it for me. So I did watch these two sequels um, recently. Before I, so I, I knew I was going to be watching Poltergeist and I was going to watch it closer to the time of the recording, but I went ahead and, and watched Poltergeist 2 and 3. Because these are things that I watched a lot as a kid and I remember enjoying, but I haven't watched them, you know, since I became an adult. Like these are things that I owned on VHS and I watched, you know, periodically or randomly and and enjoyed. And I sat down to watch Poltergeist 2 and it was nothing like I remember it. Like for the size of my nostalgia boner for Poltergeist, like there's not even any sort of nostalgia left for Poltergeist 2. It was like all of it flew out the window. It was a terrible, terrible movie, horribly acted. We just sat here and talked about how good this cast was and they brought the cast back for the sequel. And like, it was just the, the acting was gone, you know, and I, I can't blame the actors really. They were given a bad script and Poltergeist 3 really lost everything that made even the first two remotely special right yeah and i think it's one of those things where just like the remake it's like studio capitalization versus a passion for the work you know obviously toby hooper and spielberg were really passionate about that movie and they put their heart and souls into it versus everything else that followed including the sequels and the remake just felt like studio capitalization oh the first one made money like we have a name now we have a franchise let's work it let's milk that teat <laughs> Uh, I like the word teat. Um, 
I will say though that I I don't hate the remake as much as you do. I uh, oh I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I think I I gave it like a three star or two and a half or something. Because I I went into it with the lowest of expectations, right? I think because you and I yeah. were friends by the time this movie was being released, and I was like, no, I'm not going to watch it. Blah blah blah. And then my mom was like, let's go to the movies. There was nothing playing. Let's go see the Poltergeist remake. It had been out for months at that point. I guess. It was- and I hope if the if the next words out of your mouth aren't she dragged me in there kicking and screaming, I am going to be visibly ill i mean i went willingly so but i was i was ready to hate it you know and and so like by the end of it i was like it's not it's not hideous you know it's not as good as the original obviously but it's its own story you know they they, fly a drone in there yeah i know i mean like they they made some like modern changes or whatever and like it is what it is the little girl was super cute you know but I, i like rosemary dewitt yeah but I mean, ultimately, comparison-wise, you can't compare them because one is a really fantastic movie and the other one is just like ho-hum. Honestly, I thought the casting was great. They just needed a much better script, a much better director and story, or at least a director because it was competently made. You know, it's just like at least a director that cared more about the projects. Get James Wan to do it or something because his favorite movie is Poltergeist, you know? Oh, yeah. My God, he would be amazing. But I mean, if if we're talking about the Russo brothers making yet another remake, and we talked about how those are going to be a little different, um, would you would you watch that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends. Like, I would want to see what their take is, and I would want to see the trailer. All the times that I have like told you to go watch it and pushed you to go watch the remake, right? And then I saw that you had watched it on Letterbox, right? And I was just like, I immediately felt like shit. I was just like, oh my god, I ruined my friend's life for making him watch this remake. <laughs> <laughs> there is before watching poltergeist the remake and there is after in my life <laughs> my innocence is missing it's gone <laughs> i've stolen it from you my nostalgia boner is deflated <laughs> it's a nostalgia flaccid i don't know <laughs> oh motherfucker so i have some fun facts for you Okay, Leah, mommy. I don't have that many for this because I feel like we already know everything. Maybe done in Kruger, yeah. effect, but I, I do have some. So, okay, Drew Barrymore's audition for Poltergeist is what landed her the role of Gertie in ET. So she was going to play Caroline, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Obviously, yeah. I mean, no, she was going to play the Beast. She was like Dana. <laughs> <laughs> That's just interesting because they're kind of the same age, right? So it could have been swapped, you know. But uh, Drew Barrymore's uh, yeah, audition is what landed her the role of Gertie in E.T. And Spielberg had wanted a girl maybe like less adorable but more angelic for the role. You know, and so maybe one without a lisp. <laughs> so I, I like Drew Barrymore in E.T., but I cannot see her doing Carol Ann. I think Heather O'Rourke is all I can see in my head. Either way, I would have so. been adorable, but whatever. Yeah. So there is a very famous jump cut. In Poltergeist that you may or may not have noticed when uh, they're in the kitchen and Diane Freeling is having herself and Carol Ann slide across the waxless floor, <laughs> you know, be, you know, being pulled by the tickle or whatever she calls it. Um, mm-hmm. That sounds really weird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and the dad, Steve, is kind of like, what the fuck is happening? You know, and uh, then it like harsh cuts to them in front of the neighbor's house kind of saying hey have you had any disturbances and there's a whole like mosquito biting thing it's like a weird thing so it's a really harsh cut it's like mid-sentence cut 
Mm-hmm. And so there's a reason for that. So the reason behind that is because, you know, they're like, okay, well, let's go to, to go Pizza Hut or whatever. And so that's what Steve goes like, I hate Pizza Hut and goes into the whole diatribe about Pizza Hut being like shit. And so the studio's <laughs> like, we can't do this. Like, we can't. <laughs> is that really we want a sponsor not a lawsuit <laughs> yeah so he yeah the studio was like no that. we can't have him like yeah and there was no other, other way to cut it because it goes directly into i hate pizza hut because <laughs> <laughs> that jump cut has always bothered yeah. me right even like when i was old enough to realize that films are edited in a, in a certain way and you start to watch Poltergeist, and I'm like, well, why did they make this glaring-ass mistake? <laughs> and Pizza Hut was huge in the oh, 80s. Yeah. So, Pizza good God. Hut. That's hilarious. Pizza Hut. <laughs> 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 so, Joe Beth Williams was hesitant about shooting the swimming pool scene because of the large amount of electrical equipment positioned over and around the pool. Yeah. In order to comfort her, Steven Spielberg himself crawled in the pool with her to shoot the scene. Spielberg had told her, now if the light falls in, we'll both fry. Well, the strategy worked and Williams got in the pool. It's a pretty good director right there. It wasn't Tony Hooper in the pool. I'm just saying. <laughs> what else you got? So when Diane Freeling is being assaulted in her room near the end of the film, a picture of Carol Ann that was on the dresser is replaced with that of a demonic face, though it's a bit hard to see in the background. <gasps> what? Yes, you have to go rewatch that scene now. It's true. Oh my God, and I will. That's, <laughs> it's like that little boy cut out in Three Men and a Baby. It took me so long to find that shit when I was a kid. <laughs> so yes. I noticed on this viewing that at the very end, they're zooming out on the hotel, and the last room it pans past before zooming out is room 217. Yes! Which, of course, is the original haunted room in the Shining novel. And, of course, the Freelings are staying in room like 209, I think. But I thought that was interesting. I, I don't know. It might be completely incidental. I mean, but you know you know who notices shit like mm. that, though, is like horror fans. So it doesn't matter. I mean, like, if they left it in there for horror fans to notice, that's Yeah, this perfect. isn't online at all. So. Like, I searched for this and no one else has noticed this apparently. So I'm the first. Oh, my God. Put it on IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> so... Also, this is the last one. You might notice the hotel has a sign that says, Welcome Dr. Fantasy and Friends. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nickname for producer Frank Marshall. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Because I've always wondered, like, what kind of convention was going on at the fucking (laughs) Holiday Inn in Irvine or whatever. You know, (laughs) Dr. Fantasy and Friends. Yeah. That's amazing. Why do they call him Dr. Fantasy? I don't know. (laughs) Now I have to look that up. Is it pre career (laughs) porn days or something? I don't (laughs) know. Frank Marshall. My goodness. So, uh, just like every movie we talk about on the Film Flamers, there's a series of questions we're going to ask about Poltergeist. And so we'll start off with Were you scared while watching Poltergeist? Yes. Are you scared now? I mean, Uh, you know, that fucking clown. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I. Less so now. Much less so now. I'm just like, whatever. The tree. Really, it's. It's the mystery of it. Like, to me, it's more abstract now. Like, when Zelda says, you know, now hold on to yourselves, you know, that always, like, gets me. Like, oh, my gosh, shit. You know, it's just such a good moment, um, you know, where she's talking about things they can't see or hear, you know, 
or really understand and the nature of the beast and how she describes it, the way it talks like a child and says things only a child can understand to her. It's just a child, but to us as the beast, that is so something so horrific about that, you know, something pretending to be a child, something, you know, fooling your child, you know, and thinking about that and that they only have ill will to use and manipulate and um, that you have no power over protecting that child, you know, it's just the, the horror all of it its own. And I think my, my fear in this film has evolved over the years to be less of a childlike fear and more of an adult fear, you know, completely. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth for sure. I, I know that when I was watching this as a kid, I was scared <clears throat> viscerally from watching Poltergeist because there's a lot of really scary things in this movie. Like to me, this is not a PG movie. You know, like if PG-13 were a thing at the time, yes, that's it. But I mean, like slapping an R rating on this doesn't seem like that unfathomable to me. There's a lot of really scary moments that happen in Poltergeist. Mm -hmm. And the, the older I get, and I start to use nostalgia, not just about the movies that I watch, but about my life as a child and watching them around them, right? And you get to realize that, like, most of us have had this sort of, like, nuclear family life. And it's really scary to think about it being, you know, ripped asunder, especially at a very young age, right? And yeah. so you start to, like, imagine what it's like as a parent to have a child missing and what that goes through and, like, you know, the horror adjacency of it all, on top of a very visceral horror movie, I think that Poltergeist is incredibly scary on multiple levels. Yes, yeah, definitely multi-layered. Uh, so with that being said, then, uh, is Poltergeist a horror movie? <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's like there's just no adjacency <laughs> here. I mean, like it is, it is a horror movie wrapped in a family film and shoved out to, you know the masses right yeah. i think that like i think a lot of parents probably took their kids to this movie because it's pg and were treated to an actual horror film yeah where no so, one dies or really gets injured you know and that's true you know <laughs> you i know, mean it's almost yeah. like like jurassic park was a wolf in sheep's clothing you know of of his i feel like this uh -huh. is kind of a sheep in wolf's clothing in a way <gasps> that's really good yes and, and very true so obviously this is a horror movie there's just no way around it right uh what would you rate poltergeist out of five stars five uh, <laughs> <laughs> it has its problems and you know if i was gonna try and be robotic about it i'd probably give it a four four and a half but it's one of my favorite movies and i have to you know let myself rate my favorite movies the way i want to and this movie means so much to me so i have to give it a five yeah i same it's it's a five rating for me. I this movie's perfect in my eyes. Like every time I watch it, I still love it and I will never get tired of watching it. And that's, you know, something special in a film. And I just have so many fond memories of this. And it's okay to let your nostalgia boner like in there a little bit and, you know, color the way that you rate a movie but to me poltergeist is a five-star movie i have never met a person who said they disliked poltergeist you know i just don't i don't think it's possible although i'm sure we have some listeners who don't like it you know so i mean it's possible but i've never heard that. yeah well if they so. have some words for us we'll have some words for them <laughs> <laughs> but finally who's the hottest guy in poltergeist
I don't know. My knee jerk is Craig T. Nelson, you know, but that's my choice. I, you know, I, I would say like there's a close second for me with Ryan, Richard Lawson. Yeah. He was very cute. Yeah. But really it's, you know, just because of the amount in the movie, I would have to say Craig T. Nelson, Steve Freeling. And it's more than just like, cause he was, he was attractive in this movie. There, there will come a time in Craig T. Nelson's career that I wouldn't find him very attractive. Sure. But in Poltergeist, aside from just his looks, like he's a good dad and a good husband. And I find that very attractive. So here, here, that's just it. So, well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Poltergeist. Chris, did you get to say everything you wanted to say about it? No, but I can whisper then. sweet nothings into my own ears tonight about Poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk all day about Poltergeist, too, no kidding. And me too, you know? I mean, like, I think we sort of, like, just sort of brushed the surface about the things that Chris and I feel about this movie. And, you know, we continuously talk to each other about it. Like, yeah. things will remind us of it, and we'll quote it to each other. It's a big part of our lives. And, I mean... But I think that we've done it justice. Yeah. So. And if you want the eight hour uncut version of this episode, just go over to Patreon. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> but with that being said, we do want to know what you think about this episode and Poltergeist itself. Look for us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com. Or better yet, here's an idea. Call our hotline at 972-666-7733. We got a voice from our last shooting the flames, and we're very happy about it. We want some more of them. And speaking of Patreon, head over to patreon.com slash the filmflamers to find all of our bonus content. Uh, we're doing another flashback episode this month and we've left that up to our patrons to decide and I think we can pretty much call it at this point we're going to be discussing the evil spirit movie A Stir of Echoes and stay tuned for next week when we deep dive on our main feed into white noise (laughs) that's right we wanted to pick another evil spirit movie to go along with Poltergeist and we failed to realize the connection between the two movies yeah apparently (laughs) yeah the whole EVP static blah 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 yeah Mm -hmm. we get it now we're clairvoyant (laughs) well guys thank you for all the support we appreciate it and until next episode sweet dreams addressing the living <laughs> can you please stand back you're jamming my frequencies i'm just gonna say that to people just in my you're own jamming way. my frequencies <laughs> get down here you're gonna give me whiplash <laughs> i can i just don't like trick answers yeah she's so quotable in that movie she really is i love her yeah. <laughs>